Welcome to Album Divers. This is a podcast created by two music lovers who still remember listening to albums from start to finish the way the artists intended. We give history, track-by-track analysis, and delve into the music lyrics of some of the best albums of the past and today. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Welcome to Album Divers, I'm Trevor. And I'm Shane. On this podcast, we discuss two albums per month. One of us chooses an album from this calendar year, and the other chooses an album that's been around a while. All right, Trevor, you picked a good one for us this month. Why don't you share what we're going to be reviewing today? Today we're going way back to 1966, one of the most iconic albums of all time. We're going to do it sooner or later, I guess. This is the Beach Boys, and this is Pet Sounds. Awesome, man. I'm so glad you picked this album. It's been a really fun week for me diving into it and learning a little bit about the history of the Beach Boys, which I'll have to admit, I really didn't know much at all prior to embarking on this project. It was a great time diving into this album as well as their other music and a lot of the stories of the band members over the years. Yeah, it was really fun. Obviously, you and I are much too young to remember the Beach Boys in the heyday, but I think both of us have parents that are also a little bit young for that, too. So we've talked in our intro episode about how we branched out and gotten into music on our own, but also influenced a lot by what our folks were listening to and playing growing up. And I don't know about you, but for me, I heard the Beach Boys probably more in commercials and background music for movies about surfing and girls and beaches mm-hmm. and they were almost more of a novelty band in my mind than artists. What was your experience with the Beach Boys prior to diving into Pet Sounds? Yeah, I'd, I'd say I have the same perception or had the same perception of this band. But I did get exposed to a lot of their music when I was a child because my parents were pretty big fans. They had a greatest hits album that they would play around the house and we'd be dancing and singing along as kids and it would find its way into the CD player on our road trips, going on vacations as well. So I knew a lot of the music and when we revisited it this past few weeks getting ready for this podcast, I discovered that I could still sing along with a lot of the classics. Songs like Surfing Safari, 409, Surfing USA, Fun Fun Fun, California Girls, Barbara Ann, Good Vibrations, and I could go on and on. But that was some of the earlier work that was more that fun-loving surfer music about girls and cars in California. I did see that the Greatest Hits album had Wouldn't It Be Nice, Sloop John B., God Only Knows, and Carolina Know from this album Pet Sounds that we're reviewing today. But as a kid, those weren't songs that would really grab you that much. So I, I didn't recall them as well as I did the others. And I'm really glad you picked this album and that 
we dissected this collection of music from the Beach Boys because it did contrast a lot with what I was exposed to as a kid, and it completely changed my perception of the Beach Boys as a band and exposed me to so many other layers that I had no idea even existed. Yeah, me too. And having said that, knowing that my prior perception of them was more of the lighthearted background music and the fun beach vibe type of sound, I did know as a connoisseur of music that Pet Sounds was not that. I I knew this was capital A art. And I have to admit that I was a little intimidated diving into this album for that reason, because I know there's so much information on this album. And initially, when we started diving into it, I took the approach of what can I bring to this album that hasn't already been said? And and almost before I could complete that thought in my head, I, I realized that was a fool's errand because the answer to that is clearly nothing. Um, <laughs> this this album has been dissected so many times back and forth. It's influenced so many major artists of our time and, and even back then. But I think the thing that I'm hoping that you and I can bring to this is we're two guys that are basically for the first time experiencing this album So for our listeners that maybe have a deeper understanding of this before, sometimes experiencing something for the first time or watching somebody else do so can be a very rewarding experience. And I'm hoping that that's the interesting angle that we can bring to this podcast. Yeah, it's a bit overwhelming taking on the challenge of reviewing what's known as number two, if not to some, the number one album of all time. And most charts have it at number two, sandwiched between two iconic albums from the Beatles. So clearly it's stood the test of time over the past 50 plus years, and that does make it a little bit intimidating to try to dive into this album and and fully do it justice. But I agree. I, I, I think that the unique component that we can bring to this podcast is that we are two music lovers who, for the first time, dove through this album from start to finish, and we'll be able to give our initial perception of it and provide some interesting facts and insight that we've gained through our research, share that with hopefully some longtime Beach Boys fans who may have already been exposed to that information, but would have a, a good time hearing it again. And then for those who are also getting exposed to this side of the Beach Boys, like we are, that it would potentially lead to them challenging their perception of this band and possibly going down their own exploration into the album Pet Sounds, and some of the other less popular non-mainstream music that the Beach Boys have produced over the years. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. And the other thing I would say as far as some apprehension in diving into such an iconic album was, what if I don't get it? (laughs) What if my perception of them doesn't change from what it was prior? And what if I'm not seeing the art in Pet Sounds like I'm supposed to, quote unquote, at least I'm happy to say that that did not happen. I, I really felt like this album lived up to the hype that surrounded it and that I knew so many artists and music lovers talk about it being. Yeah, well, let's get into it. Obviously, we could spend hours talking about the Beach Boys history, but let's give a, a quick rundown on some of the key facts and events in their timeline to get us up to the point where Pet Sounds was released. Sounds good. Okay, here's a background on the Beach Boys. They formed in Hawthorne, California in 1961. It's about 15 miles from downtown L.A. Their original lineup and leading up to Pet Sounds was Brian Wilson was the oldest. 
He's vocals and bass and keyboards. Dennis is the middle brother, drums, vocals, and also some keyboards. Carl's the youngest Wilson brother, vocals and guitar. Their cousin Mike Love is actually two years older than Brian. He was typically just a singer, and on most of the California sound, surfing music, he was the lead singer in their earlier work. Some percussion and saxophone as well. Their friend Al Jardine is the same age as Brian, vocals and rhythm guitar. Growing up in Hawthorne, all three brothers shared a bedroom, and from an early age, Brian taught them to sing harmony. The brothers, their cousin Mike and friend Al would meet at the Wilson family home to play music and sing and and hang out. Growing up, their father Murray was physically and emotionally abusive. Their mother Audrey was likely a closet alcoholic. She was always trying to be the peacemaker of the family home. Murray beat all of his sons, particularly the middle son, Dennis. Dennis is the one that had a little bit more of a fiery side. He worked out. He was actually the only one that surfed in the family. But he kind of gave it back a little bit more, I think, to Murray, and so he got the brunt of it. That certainly doesn't mean that he was easy on Brian by any means. And it's said, although even Brian gives different accounts of this, but he has said that it's a blow to the side of his head when he was two years old from a two-by-four that Murray used to hit him that caused deafness in his right ear. In addition to the physical abuse, he would psychologically abuse the kids. He had a glass eye and he was known to take the eye out and make Brian stare into his empty skull to terrorize him. That's insane. There was also even a story that Brian had quoted of a time for punishment. He made Brian fold out some newspaper on the kitchen floor and defecate on it. Wow. From a young age, Brian was encouraged in music, though. He had a ukulele as a child. That was one of his earliest instruments. They'd also rented an accordion, and he would play a lot with that until at some point they couldn't make payments on it and they had to return it. He also sang in the church choir. Murray had a piano and a Hammond organ, and Brian would play both for hours at a time. And definitely Brian was the most naturally musically gifted of the Wilson brothers, but Carl also worked really hard and learned to play the guitar from a pretty young age. Brian's music was really influenced by a lot of the male jazz quartets, doo-wop type groups. He loved the Four Freshmen, which was a male jazz quartet, and he loved another quartet called the High Lows. And then young Carl got into more the rock and roll side. He really liked Chuck Berry and Little Richard. And at first, Brian wasn't really interested in rock and roll. He didn't really understand it. And it wasn't until Phil Spector came along that he really started to appreciate it. At one point, Brian received a tape recorder as a gift. He would record two-part harmonies with him and one of his brothers, and then he would play that back, and then they would sing two additional harmonies over top of that. And this helped them to refine their skills and do up style singing. At one point, it was Dennis that suggested that they should write a song about surfing. Once again, he's the only beach boy that actually surfed, and Brian thought that might be a good idea, so they did. First song was called Surfin', and it was popular enough that it started to get some local radio play and was released in December of 1961 and became a hit on the small record label Candix. At that time, they were calling themselves the Pendletones, after a style of shirt called the Pendleton that was popular at the time. And then they were surprised to find out when their records arrived for that single surfing, 
that Candix had renamed them the Beach Boys without them knowing it, so this is how they became the Beach Boys. Their father, Murray, was a songwriter himself of minor acclaim, and he used his musical connections to get them a contract with Capitol and declared himself their manager. Their first album was called Surf and Safari, and that was released in 1962. Brian, who, remember, was the oldest of the brothers, was just 20 years old when that was released. And despite all of this recognition and them growing quickly as a band, Brian would describe himself as being a withdrawn and scared child. He wet the bed up until his teen years. He would later say that the greatest motivation for him in writing songs was this feeling of inferiority or feeling like he was lacking something. But music was his escape, and when he was younger, that escape was from his father, and when he became an adult, from all the anxiety of travel and touring and what would be recognized later as an emerging mental illness. When he escaped really, really deep into music, that is where Pet Sounds came out. But before we get into Pet Sounds, I think it's worth noting that there are inklings of this style of deeper music in Brian's prior writings before Pet Sounds. As fun as it is to imagine this magic moment of inspiration, it was actually years of effort and meticulous time in the studio that that led to Brian being able to write something like Pet Sounds. As Brian would say himself, he, he said, I'm not a genius, I'm just a hardworking guy. As was alluded leading up to this album, they had become incredibly successful with a string of hits centered around youth and surfing and California and cars, and, and this sound was dubbed the California Sound. This was actually their 11th studio album, Pet Sounds, so remember they had just become a band in basically 62. It was December of 61, so they were on a pace putting out like two or three albums a year up until Pet Sounds. But Brian had felt like they'd sort of milked everything they could out of that California sound. And he was wanting to do something bigger. He wasn't sure exactly what that was, but he was feeling like surfing and cars and girls had reached its maximum in terms of what he could get out of those sounds. In early 64, the Beach Boys were off to perform in Australia, and much to their dismay, Murray decided he was going to join them. It was supposed to be something that was going to be really fun, and they were just going to be together as a band. But bringing Murray along caused trouble as it tended to do. During this time, too, the Beatles had arrived in the U.S., and Brian was feeling threatened, though he really did admire the Beatles. When they returned from Australia to the U.S. and back to the recording studio, Murray continued to badger them and criticize Brian's musicianship. During the recording of I Get Around, which most of you know is an iconic Beach Boys song, he rode Dennis so hard that Dennis ended up punching a hole in the wall of the studio. Brian, who was not an outspoken, aggressive person, he finally grabbed Murray and threw him out of the studio and just basically fired him on the spot. I think it's really interesting to note, though, Brian was really tactful with the press following this incident. The statement that he made was, he's a better father than a manager, which I thought was really an interesting statement because if that's the case, that's pretty telling how terrible of a manager he was. Somewhere during this time as well, Brian was asked to contribute a piano part to a Phil Spector album, who we, of course, know Brian admired greatly. But Phil Spector didn't end up using this in the recording, and so this was just one more thing in Brian's life that was causing stress. So much more was falling on his shoulders with the Beatles breathing down the Beach Boys' neck, him taking over leadership of the band, and in December of 64, 
Brian had a panic attack aboard a flight from L.A. to Houston. He was just crying and screaming in the aisleway of the plane. And later he just said the rubber band had just stretched as far as it could go. And he decided to stop touring and performing live with the Beach Boys and focus just on writing music. So he was 22 at this time, dealing with the panic attacks and the anxiety and missing several shows. He just decided he needed to avoid the touring entirely. The rest of the Beach Boys would continue on the tour, and Brian would stay in the studio. Carl ended up stepping up and becoming the de facto road leader. So being freed from the burden of travel, Brian's musical development became evident in two albums released leading up to Pet Sounds. That was The Beach Boys Today and Summer Days, Summer Nights. In July of 1965, the single California Girls showcased Wilson as he began to experiment with psychedelic drugs. He had what was considered a, quote, very religious experience while taking LSD and stated that he learned a lot of things like patience and understanding, things that he couldn't explain. But it was also a week after this that he started to suffer from auditory hallucinations, which would persist throughout the rest of his life. He says he also used marijuana during the creation of Pet Sounds that gave him the ability to create something. And then, in December of 1965, along comes the Beatles with Rubber Soul. This was released about a year after that panic attack that we mentioned. And this really awakened something in Brian. It was the first time he'd heard an album that he would describe as being perfect from start to finish. Brian didn't want to copy the Beatles, but he wanted to be on their level and even surpass it in his own way. And so that feeling of an inferiority complex was rising up in him and motivating him to put out something that was even better than Rubber Soul. It's worth noting that the album as an art form leading up to this really hadn't existed. Even the Beatles took notice of this after Pet Sounds releasing Sgt. Pepper. I've got some quotes by Paul McCartney throughout the track-by-track that we do just to describe how much Pet Sounds meant to him and how much it motivated the Beatles after Pet Sounds was motivated by Rubber Soul. Before anybody listening might start objecting and saying, what about Bob Dylan? Bob Dylan did have some great albums leading up to this, but the album as a complete work wasn't so much on his radar. He had some amazing albums, but that wasn't the focus like it was with Rubber Soul and with with Pet Sounds and going forward from there. In fact, in one of the perhaps greatest gifts from the music gods ever, Pet Sounds and Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan were both released on the exact same day. May 16th, 1966. What an awesome day for music that was. Yeah, no kidding. There was a time that the Beach Boys and the Beatles were neck and neck. New Music Express, which is basically the British version of Rolling Stones, had put the Beach Boys number one and the Beatles number two, Rolling Stones number three. So the this British magazine had an American act ahead of two British acts and the Beatles and the Stones no less that year. But before Rubber Soul and Pet Sounds and Blonde on Blonde, most full-length LPs were full of filler tracks and used primarily to sell albums. In contrast, there really wasn't a single hit on Rubber Soul. Of course, later, all of those songs have made their way to the radio. I mean, it's a Beatles album, but at the time, it wasn't like Help or Ticket to Ride or some of the prior Beatles albums that were focused on selling singles. Also in 1965, prior to getting started on Pet Sounds, Brian met Tony Asher in a recording studio in L.A. 
Tony Asher was a 26-year-old lyricist and copywriter, and he worked on commercial and advertising jingles for things like Barbie dolls and, and wine, among other things. Brian contacted Asher in December of 65 about being a lyrical contributor on his next album. And this was a job that typically Brian and Mike Love would be doing together. During the making of Pet Sounds, Brian's process with Asher was pretty unique. They'd, they'd get together and they'd just have these long, intimate discussions about relationships and women and life in general. Asher describes his contribution to the music itself being minimal, although there are three specific songs on Pet Sounds that he did contribute to musically, which we'll discuss as we get into the track by track. But he says as far as the lyrics were concerned, which was his primary role, he was quoted as saying the general tenor of the lyrics was always Brian's and the actual choice of words was mine. I was really Brian's interpreter, is what he said. The other muse for Brian creating Pet Sounds, besides growing weary of writing things about surfing and cars and, and the Beatles' rubber soul was Phil Spector's Wall of Sound production, described as a dense orchestral aesthetic that would play well through radio and jukeboxes of that era. It called for large ensembles and instruments not usually used, and in Brian's case, this would ultimately involve bicycle bells and horns, beverage cans, train whistle, a theremin-like instrument, doctoring and manipulating more conventional instruments, and then, of course, actual pet sounds. You can hear Brian's dogs, Banana and Louie, make a contribution to vocals in one song in particular. In fact, you can even hear him asking in the box set sessions for Pet Sounds. He asks his studio engineer if he can bring a horse into the studio. <laughs> the reply from the engineer was just, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and no horse was used in the making of Pet Sounds. On the more conventional instrumental side, though, he sought the help of the Wrecking Crew, Wrecking Crew was a loose collection of session musicians based in L.A. whose services were used for thousands of studio recordings in the 60s and 70s, including a lot of top 40 hits. The musicians weren't really publicly recognized much in that era, but they're viewed with reverence by the industry now, and they're considered one of the most successful and prolific sessions recording units in musical history. They were used on a lot of Phil Spector albums as well, which I think is one of the reasons Brian sought their help. Even within the conventional instruments, Brian would use multiple layers of instrumentation. Brian would describe Phil Spector's wall of sound method as playing the studio. Brian's brothers and bandmates didn't all agree when they arrived back from their tour in Japan to see what Brian had been working on all this time. His cousin Mike Love particularly is known for being vocal about not understanding what Brian was doing. And he was quoted as saying, don't fuck with the formula. <laughs> Though there is a lot of debate among the other Beach Boys, as to how much and who objected to the departure in their sound. Most things I read seem to show that Carl was the most supportive and Dennis and Mike were the ones that pushed back the most, though Love has dismissed these claims. The album ended up exceeding $70,000 to make, which was the most expensive album in production at the time. Pet Sounds is thought by historians to be a concept album and sometimes as the first concept album in the history of rock and roll. But it's related much more to its uniformity and excellence rather than a lyrical theme or narrative. Although as we get into the track by track, there are some themes and narratives that pop out to me, and I'll be curious to see what your thoughts are. Wilson himself commented on this, relating it back to his Phil Spector influence, and said it was really a production concept. The title developed after the artwork, which depicts the band in a San Diego zoo feeding apples to seven goats, 
Capitol Records' working title was Our Freaky Friends, and the animals were supposed to represent the freaky friends. But the zoo officials weren't really very happy about the photo shoot or the title and attaching the word freaky to the animals. It was Mike Love that named the album Pet Sounds after Brian's dogs in the album, and Carl figured that Pet Sounds was also like Brian's favorite sounds, basically like everybody has their pet sounds and these are Brian's favorite sounds or pet sounds. It was also loosely a tribute to Phil Spector's initials with P.S. There's 71 musicians listed in the liner notes of this album, which is crazy. Besides Brian, the band itself, the Beach Boys, didn't do a whole lot. Upon its release, it was less commercially successful than their prior efforts. It peaked at number 10, but it did significantly better in the U.K. It peaked at number 2 there. Capitol originally considered shelving it due to their departure in sound. I found it really fascinating that Capitol Records considered not even releasing this album back in 1966, mainly because of the departure from the typical sound that the Beach Boys had been putting out. After 10 albums, as Brian had stated, they basically ran that course and burned it out. And he had more inside him that he wanted to talk about. He had more feelings and emotions and stories and wanted to create music that was different to push the boundaries and move forward. And I think you can really hear that on this album. The experimental nature of the sound was incredible. The harmonies, the the orchestration with all the instruments. And looking back on it, I think it really meshed well with that, that time, that era of experimentation. As you mentioned, Brian said that marijuana, LSD, and I believe I even read amphetamines played a role in giving him the creativity to work with all the sounds and tap into some of these deeper meanings and concepts that ended up on the album. He also states that although the drugs were helpful, they also kind of messed him up. And he ultimately discovered or arrived at the conclusion that he didn't want any part of them. But what's most fascinating to me is that during a time when people were experimenting and pushing the boundaries with lots of areas in life that an album like this, which did the same, wasn't really received the best uh, by the public. And that's probably why there was reservations by Capitol Records to release it in the first place, because they knew that people would be a little taken aback by the fact that it wasn't the typical Beach Boys sound that they were expecting. But as time has proven over the years, and as nearly all music critics would agree, Pet Sounds clearly stands out as the Beach Boys' best work. And even though it wasn't received the best at first by the public and wasn't quite as successful at the time in that moment as some of their previous works, as we mentioned, it inspired the Beatles to create Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which has achieved the title of number one album of all time by many charts and critics. Others over the years have cited Pet Sounds as a major inspiration to their work. These musicians include R.E.M., David Bowie, The Flaming Lips, Bruce Springsteen, Weezer, Nick Drake, Wilco, Fleet Foxes, and Radiohead. So even though the album Pet Sounds took a different direction from the classic Beach Boys sound at the time and wasn't received as well by the public as they would have hoped, it's clearly had a huge impact on the musical community and left its mark as a groundbreaking album that has inspired 
a lot of other great music over time. It stood the test of time, and most critics revere this as the most unique and polished album that the Beach Boys ever released. Yeah, I think it's interesting to note, too, even though Capitol did finally acquiesce and decide to put out this album, they still put out a greatest hits album right after it, basically at the same time. So I think they were thinking, okay, the public is not going to get Pet Sounds. We still got to make our money. Sure. So here's a greatest hits album, too. After the release of Pet Sounds, Brian's contribution to the Beach Boys would diminish with his mental health, and he would become increasingly disconnected and basically agoraphobic. I do wonder how much of that was influenced by the Beatles responding with Sgt. Pepper and Brian realizing that he had basically lost that competition. After all this agoraphobia and depression, it's said that Brian spent basically two years in bed and he ballooned up to about 300 pounds. He was depressed and, and suicidal. This is where he met Dr. Eugene Landy, who was kind of this Svengali doctor that really did kind of help save his life. He helped him lose the weight that he'd put on, got him out of his depression, got him out of bed. But he also took it a step too far, and he was manipulative. He started putting himself into Brian's will. He was over-medicating him at the time. He tricked him into signing things that Brian wasn't really aware of. And this is basically something that took him years to get out from under the mental control of Dr. Landy. Clearly, he had been going through some difficult thoughts and emotions in his head the two or three years prior to when he went into the studio by himself to create this album when the rest of the band was out of the country. And since he was experimenting with so many new sounds, opening up new doors and pushing the boundaries a little bit, while also having some crazy trips from the drug experimentation during that same period of time, I'm sure there was a lot of pressure and anxiety leading up to sharing that album, the music, with the brothers, with the band, with his father, to first see how they would receive it. And he, he caught a little bit of resistance from a couple of guys that you mentioned. So there was already a little pushback, and he was probably feeling rather proud of the album before that, but really needed their approval for it to, to be solidified in his head as, as a good piece of work that he wanted to put out there. And it sounds like the band finally got on board. They tweaked a little bit of it, and we'll probably get into that when we talk about the track by track. But then to have Capitol Records second guess whether or not they wanted to release it, that probably made him start thinking even more. And then tangled up in there is that internal competition with the Beatles album, Rubber Soul. Yeah. Being inspired by it, but also wanting to one-up it a little bit in a, in a, a friendly way. I, I think deep inside, Brian was a perfectionist, especially as it relates to music. He heard things, he saw things that the average person probably didn't pick up on, and that made him really persistent to get things as good as they possibly could be. And part of that was probably his human nature, but also the fact that the Beatles had exposed him to what he at the time considered as a, a new height above what he had put out and other music that was around at the time. So... He wanted to at least match that, and there was that pressure surrounding the release of this album as well. So I imagine that turmoil in his head surrounding all those issues and a lot of the, the backstory that we know to it probably contributed in large part to him going down a long path of battling mental health issues. Yeah, I think so. 
it sounds like there were some intrinsic things already within him that might have caused those some of those mental issues, but then, of course, the drugs and the abuse and the time on the road, the Beatles breathing down your neck, none of that stuff helped. And then after you basically put something out that is your, your soul to the world and it's not received the way that you hope it would be, I can see all of that stuff just coming together for him and being part of what might have pushed him into that next phase of his life and and the breakdown of his mental health that occurred shortly after this album. I think it's unfortunate that he did go down that path and that's the story that we have to tell. There were obviously some years in there, some missing times that some really great music could have been produced after Pet Sounds. Yeah, that's true. Eventually, as you mentioned, with the help of a therapist, family and friends, Brian was able to move forward with his life, with his solo career and has performed with the band and admits that he continues to struggle off and on with various issues, but overall seems to be doing well, which is great. Well, as I mentioned before, before we jump into the track by track of this album, as we embarked on this journey, I asked myself, what details can I add to the discussion of Pet Sounds that hasn't already been said? I realized almost before completing that question in my mind that that was a foolish one because the answer is, of course, nothing. But it's my hope as we get into the track by track that in addition to specific details and facts about these songs and uniqueness is that we are just absorbing the album for the first time and these are the impressions that both of us are having through the preconceptions that we might have had about the Beach Boys' place in history prior to this. We really enjoyed exposing ourselves to this album for the first time I hope those of you that have a deep history with this band and this album can appreciate the excitement of and discovery of two music lovers discovering it for the first time. I'm really excited to jump into talking about Pet Sounds with you. Should we do the track by track? Yeah, let's get after it. Well, the first song on Pet Sounds is one that many of you probably know. This is Wouldn't It Be Nice. Wouldn't it be nice? like how that song starts off it's got this sound that sounds like a almost like a carousel or like a music box it's real childlike and then you get that orchestral drum hit that just sort of shatters that and then of course the song itself is all about these coming of age feelings so to me it felt like a awesome lead into what the lyrics are about yeah when that drum hits it's like saying all right here we go brian wilson said uh, regarding this song wouldn't it be nice it's not a real long song, but it's a it's a very up song. It expresses the frustrations of youth, what you can't have, what you really want, and you, you have to wait for it. The need to have the freedom to live with somebody. The idea is the more we talk about it, the more we want it, but let's talk about it anyway. I think that sums it up. Yeah, for sure. Musically, there were some elements that really weren't present on rock songs at the time that that slowing down or that retardando to the bridge was not a common thing to do in rock. You know, it seems the more we talk about it. 
It also features instruments playing in different keys. Mm-hmm. The bass player, one of the Wrecking Crew, Lyle Ritz, he actually thought it was a mistake at the time because his bass part was in a different key as some of the other instruments. But it all came together at the end. Lyrically, I like how it retains its childhood innocence by the end. The, as the outro implies, they didn't give in to their temptation this time. They're they're leaving each other and going home. I like the fade out on this one, too, like they're walking away from each other. I think my favorite part of the song was that bridge where you mentioned they slow it down. And that's when we first get introduced, at least on this album, to the great harmonization that the band members are able to do. You know, with the... Or, Oh, we could be married, and then the echo, we could be married, and then we'd be happy, and then we'd be happy. It's really cool how they can take a song that starts so uplifting and and fun-loving from a musical standpoint, and then really slow it down, and then quickly jump back up to a Wouldn't It Be Nice and into the chorus. I really like that contrast of sound. Yeah, me too. Without getting too much into the weeds of the internal conflict that existed within the Beach Boys, this is an interesting example of where there was some disagreement about who wrote what in the creation of this album. Mike Love insisted on writing credit to this song, and there was a court case in 1990 that eventually resulted in him receiving some co-writing credit in 1994. Tony Asher would deny this, saying there's really no way he could have contributed since he was away from the studio touring when it happened. But nonetheless, that's the end result, is that Mike Love got some credit for some writing on this song. Another interesting note on this song is that it was released as a single with another track from this album, God Only Knows, as its B-side. Yeah, I read that too, but in some other countries, those two were flipped, I read. Oh, interesting. So that God Only Knows was the A-side and Wouldn't It Be Nice was the B-side. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and the two songs really mesh well or contrast each other. I don't want to get into God Only Knows too much because we'll get to that later in the album, but I can see how they chose to pair those together. Yeah, me too. Should we go on to track two? Yeah, let's take a look at track two. This one is titled, You Still Believe in Me. I know. So this song hits us with a lot of different sounds, a lot of instruments, including bicycle sounds in the background, which I thought was a really cool touch. But it it starts with something I didn't even know was was possible, that you could even do such a thing. But the notes that you hear to enter this track are from plucking the strings of a piano. What they said was that Brian would hold down the notes on the keyboard that he wanted to play a sound around so that when the strings were plucked, it would ring. And the rest of the guys were leaning inside the piano. I'm sure they were taking turns and using various items like paper clips, hairpins, bobby pins, and several other things to pluck these strings until 
Brian got that exact sound he wanted and you know then said yeah that's it this is what we're going to run with so I just thought that was genius I'm not sure if people had done that prior to them and that's where they got the idea or if somebody just came up with with the idea of doing that but that was news to me that you could even do that and I thought that was incredible when I found out that piece of history and, and how that song was created yeah, it's really interesting, and it's, and it's not the only time that Brian's going to doctor an instrument to create a new right, sound yeah. on this album. And it's it's Tony Asher that's the one leaning in doing the plucking, but you're right, paper clips, okay. hairpins, bobby pins, and, and Brian, the one hitting the keys till they got it just perfect. Oh, that's right, because the rest of the guys weren't around. It was just Brian and exactly, yeah. Asher in the studio playing around with everything. This song was originally going to be called In My Childhood, and you hear the remnants of a song that sounds like a childhood theme. You hear those bicycle horns and bells throughout the song. Yeah. And it was Asher's lyrics that ultimately made them change the title to You Still Believe in Me based on the new lyrics that he wrote, but they kept the childhood musical themes throughout the song. This was Asher's first assignment. He was handed a tape and music and, and different words, like I had said, that were about that song in my childhood. Asher said that he never heard the original lyrics with the music. He saw them apart from each other, but he doesn't know exactly how they would have gone. But nonetheless, rewrote the words, and Brian liked it, and it became You Still Believe in Me. Lyrically, I thought it was a really great song, and I'm sure many people can relate to it. The underlying theme is young love there's this guy who starts off by saying i know perfectly well i'm not where i should be i've been very aware you've been patient with me every time we break up you bring back your love to me and after all i've done to you how can it be you still believe in me now basically admitting that he's not the person he needs to be in the relationship and questioning how she could even still want to be with him and believe in him but l later in the song we see lines that show he is trying to be a better person he's trying to be more of what she wants him to be and that he's working through it they're working on their relationship yeah and in that way he does come in with elements of childhood in that struggle with relationship that was a that is an adult relationship so even though the lyrics were changed it still holds that childhood element just in a different way Paul McCartney is quoted saying about this song, he said, I love that melody that kills me, that melody. He said, I think it's my favorite, the way it's arranged, where it goes away very quietly. He said, I was in the car the other night and telling my kids, saying, wait, wait, here it comes. And then when those vocal harmonies come back in, he said, it's so beautiful. It just comes surging back in with these multicolored harmonies. He said, it sends shivers up my spine. Yeah, I agree with Paul. It's a great song. I really like the way they sing that word cry also with the crescendos up and down, all the harmonies and echoes that they use around that word. It's really fun uh, to listen to that part. Yeah, that part that Paul references is so cool. I thought the song was over because they already do kind of bring it down a little bit and then come back in with the vocals and then it 
does it again and almost stops before they all just hit back even harder at the end. That was a really surprising part. I can put myself in the same shoes as Paul McCartney where he's talking to his kids saying, wait for it, wait for it, here it comes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. It's probably one of the underrated tracks on the album. I agree. All right, we ready to move on to track three? Let's do track three. The song's called That's Not Me. I had to prove that I could make it alone now, but that's not me. I wanted to show how independent I've grown now, but that's not me. I could try to be big in the eyes of the world. What matters to me is what I could be. I mentioned when I give the history there were three songs on Pet Sounds that Tony Asher contributed musically to. This is one of them, but this is the first one on the album that Tony Asher contributed not just lyrically, but also musically to. When it came to the lyrics, Asher wasn't particularly happy with these, but Brian just loved them. He felt a really deep connection to them, and he felt that there was also a universality with them that other people would connect to as well. And so they stayed exactly how Asher initially wrote them instead of reworking because Brian loved them. Yeah, I really liked the lyrics. I, I thought it was another good love song that really depicts what it's like to be love struck or falling for somebody. You know, it says, I could try to be big in the eyes of the world, but what matters to me is what I could be to just one girl. Clearly, he's wrapped up in the relationship, and that's the most important part, if the only part in his life that he's really thinking about, that he cares about right now, even though there is maybe a temptation to be bigger in the eyes of the world. The song opens up by saying, I could prove to myself that I could be alone now, but that's not me. I wanted to be independent and grown up, but that's not me. So there, there's some wrestling back and forth between being on your own and being with somebody. But in this song, at least, the conclusion is that I want to spend my time with you. I want to be with you. And that's more important than anything else. I agree with Brian. I really like those lyrics, too. I'm glad that Asher didn't try to rework them, even though he wasn't particularly satisfied with them himself. Yeah, I see that there's a universality within them. I think a lot of people can relate to that, especially the age group that Brian's trying to write to with this album. He's in his early 20s. I think he's 23 or 24, but he's still writing to a group a little bit younger, and, and he's kind of a man-child in a way. He he is a little bit more innocent and, and younger inside, and, and so he's writing to kids that are just starting to have these feelings and those innocent feelings of growing up and love and um, some of those things that are so poignant and strong when you're going through them for the first time and, and in this case, discovering yourself for the first time. Mike Love takes lead vocals on this song. So I mentioned earlier that Mike Love was the main singer in most of their California sound style songs. And it's not till the third song on Pet Sounds that Mike Love jumps back into the lead vocal role. I really like Mike's voice, especially in their earlier work. And even in a a song like That's Not Me, where it's a little bit more serious, you can still hear his poppy, fun-loving nature come through as he's singing it, which is kind of cool. It is. One of the techniques that Mike Love did for his voice is he would double it. So he'd sing a track, and then he would just sing it right back on top, kind of similar to what Brian would do using multiple layers of instrumentation to create that wall of sound. But it wasn't a Phil Spector 
style technique when it came to Mike Love's voice. They were actually doing that all along, even to, in prior Beach Boys albums that weren't trying to be more artsy. That was just Mike Love's style. And even after this and going on and doing some of the things on his own and, and solo work, Mike Love continued to double his vocals. It just sort of became the Mike Love sound. Yeah. We'll move on to track four. This one's called Don't Talk, Put Your Head on My Shoulder. I can hear so much in your side And I can see so much in your eyes In reference to this song, Brian said at one time, this is one of the sweetest songs I ever sang. I have to say I'm proud of it. The innocence of youth in my voice, of being young and childlike, I think that's what people liked about it. And I would have have to agree. I first want to comment on his incredible ability to flip into falsetto and then back to his normal voice without skipping a beat. For those who who don't have a background in in choir or singing, that's a really difficult thing to do without slipping up or having your voice crack. And then for it to sound clear. I mean, when I was younger listening to these guys, I thought they just had a really high voice and were singing natural. But as I matured as a, a listener and gained that background in music through school years, I came to find out not many males can naturally sing that high so that clearly they're flipping into falsetto. And Brian's not a guy that has a naturally high voice. Oftentimes he's singing the lower parts. But it's pretty impressive that he can sing that way. We see that in a few songs, but this one in particular stands out to me. And lyrically, I'll have to agree with Brian that it's a really sweet song to say, don't talk just put your head on my shoulder, close your eyes and be still. It's it's really about letting the emotions drive the moment, trying to simplify things, block out the talking and just be present together. Yeah, I got the impression from the lyrics that it sounded like two people that know that they're going to have to be apart soon and they're just trying to savor every moment that they have together. Yeah, it could be that or possibly that there's been some tension and maybe things aren't going well possibly they had a heated discussion or some trying times and you know one of them said hey let's not talk for a while just be here be still be in this moment for for whatever it's worth whether that's them parting ways or wanting to embrace each other and and, uh, have a peaceful quiet time together if things have been a little rocky i like how he throws so many versions of nonverbal communication to support the title, there's there's the size. He talks about seeing so much in her eyes. They reference the heartbeat that you just feel like you can feel. And then Carol Kay is one of the bassists for the Wrecking Crew. 
there's this driving bass line throughout the song that kind of feels like that heartbeat. You can feel that bass line. It says, take my hand and listen to my heartbeat. I like thinking about that bass line matching those words. And listen to my heart. And then at the end, those string parts rise up that feel kind of like tears building. The, the lyrics and the words really just went together in such a beautiful way with Brian's falsetto over top of it. Really cool song. Yeah, they really do sound nice. There's lots of great chord changes and close harmonies, which is something that Brian was getting more and more into at the time and, and trying to work into the Beach Boys sound. This is a song that I had read initially. Brian was trying to bring other members of the Beach Boys into to get a more full band sound and then ended up ultimately just scaling it back to where it was just him. And I'm glad that he did. I think that this is one that would have collapsed in on itself if there was too much going on. And I think just having him seeing those high falsetto parts on his own was a lot more meaningful than it would have been if there was a lot of other voices in the mix here. Yeah, that's probably true. Anything else on this song? Let's go on to track five. All right, let's take a listen to this one. It was written in 1964, but it was held over and reworked to be included on this album. This one's titled, I'm Waiting for the Day. As you mentioned, this song was written by Brian a couple years earlier in 64, and it was reworked for Pet Sounds. The song is credited to Brian and also Mike Love, who had made some minor lyrical changes. I really like how the drums start us out right out of the gate. And then that piano slide. Did you catch that little part in there? Yeah, I like that part too. Brian was the lead on this song. As far as vocals are concerned, he had said that he didn't feel they were adequate. So ever the self-critic, he didn't love his vocals on this one for whatever reason. This may be the most dynamic song on the album. There's a lot of tempo and changes in the energy in the song that make it really interesting. And then even lyrically, I think it changes a lot. The majority of the song is kind of a sweet love song about somebody being patient, waiting for this person that they care for, but whose heart's been broken by somebody else, waiting for the day that she can love again. But then at the end, when the music changes and it picks up a little bit, the lyrics start to feel more like a almost a pressure. The tone of the narrator who at the time seems very patient, waiting for this person to love again, says, you didn't think I could sit around and let him work. You didn't think I'd sit around and watch him take you. Sounds a little bit more like he's getting restless. So this song's so dynamic in its musical content, but also lyrically 
seems to have a lot of changes and you ride that roller coaster along with the narrator in this song. Yeah, well said. I'd, I'd have to agree. This is one of the most dynamic tracks on the album because lyrically it changes tempo, so to speak, a lot in the words and the, and the, the way the message is being pushed forward. But musically, the tempo does a great job of complementing that by starting out a little intense, but not too intense, and then breaking it down, getting a little bit slower, but then gradually picking up. As we hear the chorus again, it's a little bit more aggressive, intense. And as you said, there's this feeling like that person is, is being pressured or they've lost that patience and now they're letting it all out there. I might be mistaken. I, I mentioned that Brian's seeing lead on this song, and I'm pretty sure that's the case when it comes to the verses because I had read that quote about him saying that he wasn't satisfied with his vocal part. But it sounds like Mike Love to me when it gets more the energy, especially on the outro and the the main verses hmm. sound a little bit more like Mike Love. So I'll have to look that up and see. Yeah, I'll have to go back and check that out too. Overall, though, a very great song. Probably another one that's underrated for the album. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to be an underrated song on such a great album, so that's not really saying too much. Good point. Let's talk about track six. This is an instrumental song. A beautiful song. It's called Let's Go Away for a While. I really like this one, and I think it's placed well in the album, too, at track number six. A nice instrumental track to summarize musically what we've been exposed to already in tracks one through five. Give us a chance to reflect. And it's a very pretty-sounding song. Brian is quoted as calling this track the most satisfying piece of music he ever made, which is saying a lot. So coming from a guy who, as we all know now, after what you've shared with us, is maybe as self-critical as they come and somebody who really values reworking music until it's as good as it gets for him to say this was his most satisfying piece to use that word satisfying that means that it stood out uh, to him over the years so I thought that was pretty powerful I read that too and I think it speaks a lot about how this song made its way onto this album as an instrumental because I don't know if you read this but originally the song had lyrics I didn't see that and it was called The Old Man and the Baby, and I'm not sure why or what that means. But Brian is quoted as saying, there's just no obvious tune that emerged. Hmm. He even challenged listeners. He said, said, try to hum it. He said it's just a song that was really (laughs) hard to put words to. But I think the fact that he loved the instrumentation so much, saying, like you said, it's the most satisfying piece of music he had written at the time, made it worth continuing to work this one and put it into the album, and I'm glad he did. I also found something really interesting surrounding this album. Tony Asher explained the esoteric origins of this song. He said, 
there was an album out called How to Speak Hip, the do-it-yourself psychoanalysis kit by Del Close and John Brent. It was a lampooning of the language instruction albums. I played it for Brian, and it destroyed him, killed him. Brian picked up a couple of references on the album. One of them was this hip character that said, if everyone was laid back and cool, then we'd have world peace. So Brian started going around saying, hey, would somebody get me a candy bar? And then we'll have world peace. (laughs) I read that same thing. (laughs) Brian even made an acetate disc with a label on it with the title. He talked about calling the track, let's go away for a while, and then we'll have world peace. (laughs) I wish he would have kept it that. That's hilarious. I I read that same thing. I was laughing so hard. So I did some research, and I found How to Speak Hip on Spotify. And I didn't get through the whole album, but I listened to the first 10 or 15 minutes of it. And it's it's really fascinating. It's a, a conversation between a hipster guy who's really embellishing that code of language and an older guy who sounds more like a professional talk show host like voice. And there there's this this banter back and forth on discussing how to be hip, how to be cool, how to speak a little faster and use words and phrases that that weren't really part of the everyday culture. Words like hip and dig it and oh what a drag and it's really interesting that a lot of the language from this album that i believe was released in the late 50s early 60s maybe have stood the test of time and we still see them in modern day counterculture vocabulary if you will which i thought was a really cool historical connection to this album that's pretty funny do you think that you and i should have listened to how to speak hip before we started this podcast, do you think it would have been better? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty hip already. Yeah, it might have helped you. I think I probably needed it. <laughs> I would like to go through the rest of it too because it, it was really fascinating. It was almost hypnotizing after the first five ten minutes or so. I, I was I was like getting into a little bit of a daze hearing the music back and forth. So I'm not sure if they had psychologists working with them on how to enunciate or the way they piece the sounds together but it was uh, a a bit trance-like in uh, the conversation they were having so definitely worth worth checking out if you got some time to kill dig means dig like if you don't dig and you say dig i dig where you're at like i'm the wrong cat it's the wrong word dig ladies and gentlemen now you begin to see one of our problems with the hip language Each hip word or phrase carries with it an implication of the speaker's background and his involvement in hip society. In other words, the phrase, I dig, not only means I understand, but I am a special sort of person who understands in a very special way. Yeah, that is exactly what I said. In other words, I'm saying I am hip. Dig yourself, baby. You got a way to go. You know what Tony Asher had said when Brian listened to this album, it destroyed him, killed him. I don't exactly know what all he meant by that. If he was saying, you know, he thought it was garbage or a joke or or uh, it, it killed him in the sense that it, it got him thinking about all this stuff and, and saying, who are these people and what are they talking about? Where does this come from? I, I don't really know the time, the era well enough to know what impact that might have had on somebody at the time. But I, I thought that was interesting and then that it 
somehow contributed to the formation of this song. It is a really interesting reference. And yeah, you're right. Usually when somebody says it destroyed him, you would say it like it made him break down or cry or yeah, right. sad. But that doesn't it, seem it to make sense really in this fit. context. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Maybe it just it made him laugh, like he just thought it was hilarious or something. Yeah, yeah, possibly. He had such a unique and uh, complex brain, you know. Um, watching some of the interviews from back in the day that you can pull up on YouTube, some really fun footage, some cool clips of the guys in the studio, but then also Brian talking to people. You can just tell that he's a very intriguing guy, you know. He's got this spiritual nature about him. It's hard to explain. Yeah, again, I think he, he's almost, he seems like genius at times, and he seems like a little child at other times. There's some lyrics that touch on this, but it, it's almost as if there's so many complex thoughts going through his head at any given time that it's hard for him to concisely give them to somebody else. And because of that, there's this feeling that people don't totally understand him or that he can't relate to the rest of the world because he doesn't belong. And, and whether that's him being self-critical or feeling disconnected to the average common person at the time, it does shed light on the depth of his thinking. This song uses a lot of musicians. There was 12 violins, there's piano, there was four saxophones, oboe, guitar, and then Back to his found sound and creativity, they, they used Coke bottles on the strings of a semi-steel guitar to get that effect. Yeah, it's incredible how many instruments and other items they used to turn into instruments and create music, as well as the number of people contributing through singing and in the orchestra. I think you had mentioned the cost of this album was around $70,000, which was a pretty sizable amount of money for the late 60s and it probably has in large part to do with all these instruments and people that they brought into the studio and creating it well absolutely and then the other thing that contributed to that high cost is brian's perfectionism i mean he would be like all right take 29 and <laughs> yeah. pay in for that studio time exactly and all of those people's time to be there and that drove up the cost big time yeah. as well i think it was worth it though <laughs> I'm not sure how much of it is true and how much of it is taking some artistic liberty, but I know you and I both watched that movie Love and Mercy. Yeah, that was awesome. And remember that scene where Brian walks into the studio and like all the musicians are waiting to get started and he's like feeling the walls and yeah. just like walking <laughs> around going, yeah, it's just, it just doesn't have the right vibrations today. Something's not, I mean, some of that was perfection. Some of it, I think at that point was drug influence yeah but nonetheless possibly. that that had to have costed them some money too right like, yeah all right i guess we're just not playing today <laughs> i really really enjoyed watching that movie and i think that's probably what has formed a lot of my visions on who the man brian wilson was back in the day and is today but i've also listened to a lot of interviews of him and tried to go through as much content as i could find that's out there to really get an idea who this guy was and he himself has said that Love and Mercy did a really good job depicting his life and the events leading up to uh, surrounding Pet Sounds and, and uh, what we know unfolded afterwards. So for those of you listening, if you haven't seen that movie, I highly recommend it. It's definitely a great entry point into getting some exposure to the stories surrounding the Beach Boys and 
Brian Wilson's life and Pet Sounds, the album in particular, and would probably lead to you exploring a lot of different areas that we have that will give you a better appreciation for the Beach Boys and their music. Yeah, that's cool that it got the endorsement of Brian himself. I hadn't read that, but I knew a lot of lovers of the Beach Boys that have been listening to this album and their music a lot longer than I that had given that endorsement to the movie as being fairly accurate and a good representation of that time too. So it's cool to hear that Brian was also speaking to that. This song, it was at this point in the album that I decided I loved the stereo mix of this album. I wanted to be a purist for the (laughs) mono, especially since Brian with his one ear had mixed it that way. And, And that wasn't uncommon to mix in mono at the time. So it wasn't just because of Brian's ear, but nonetheless, this album as it went out on the radio and to most people at the time I guess everybody at the time when it was released was the mono version but it was at this point listen to this song and and those coke bottle percussions and the the channel separation that I just decided all right purist be damned I, I like the stereo version because especially at that 110 mark There's this swelling of instrumentation in the right channel and this really tasteful percussion in the left. I decided, all right, I like the stereo version of it. Yeah. Maybe that's sacrilegious to say, but... Gotta go stereo. I see where you're coming from on being a a truist and wanting to enjoy the mono but there's too many good sounds that you gotta have the stereo to really pick up on before we go on to the next song this is a philosophical perhaps hypothetical question for you about this song is this actually a beach boys song if there are no beach boys on the recording yes all right (laughs) say no more (laughs) yeah i mean i guess it showed up on a beach boys album so so we call it a beach boys song but yeah the boys the boys weren't involved so i don't know that is a good philosophical question but we we could we could uh piggyback off of that idea and say is is this even a beach boys album or is this a brian wilson album yeah that that question has definitely been raised yeah and uh definitely i think is a fair question for sure Well, let's move on to the next track that this one definitely does have contribution from the band as a whole, and particularly from Al Jardine. This song is called Sloop John B. All right, so as I mentioned, this song definitely has contribution by all the Beach Boys, and particularly Al Jardine, whose idea it was to arrange this song. He brought that idea to Brian. This was originally a Caribbean folk song. It dates back as early as 1916, and Brian took it and reworked the sound of it and also some of the lyrics and made it his own, but it was really Al Jardine's insistence that finally led to Brian making that decision. This is a song that I knew prior to us going down this journey of dissecting the album because it was on 
that Beach Boys Greatest Hits CD that my family and I would listen to a lot on our road trips. But I, I didn't know that that history that it was originally a, a Caribbean folk song. Two other well-known bands, artists, had released songs based off of this folk song prior to the Beach Boys. The first was the Kingston Trio in 1958 mm-hmm. through Capitol Records, and that was titled Sloop John B., I didn't compare the lyrics word for word, but I did listen to it, and it's a much more neat, clean, slowed version of the song, but it's definitely something I'd go check out. It was fun to listen to that and and see how that was maybe the first evolution of taking that folk song and turning it into a mainstream rock song. And then in 1959, Johnny Cash released a song titled I Want to Go Home, and it had a lot of the same lyrics as well in that and it, it was a typical johnny cash sounding song it was a real slow deeper voice but uh, a fun one as well let me go home let me go home why don't you let me go home will i feel so homesick i want to go home the first mate he got drunk Broke up the people's trunk. That was a cool journey to go explore those tracks that were released before the Beach Boys put it on this album. Yeah, you said the Johnny Cash version was released when? 1959, so a year after that Kingston trio did it the first time. Yeah, okay, so before this. Wow, I didn't even realize it had gone back that far with Johnny Cash. You, I think, sent me a clip of that, and I need to still listen to it. Yeah, and I'm not sure if there was anybody else between... 1959 and the release of the track on this album those were two notables that i found and you can still find those songs out there if you do a quick search on youtube well to give a little context about what they're talking about in this song a sloop is a type of sailboat and john b was an old sponger boat presumably a sloop and the the crew of this ship were in the habit of getting into trouble, making merry wherever they would go, and and it wrecked and sunk at the governor's harbor of Eleuthera of the Bahamas, I hope I'm saying that right, in about 1900. So this song was written after an actual event. And and there are a lot of songs nowadays that employ that contrast between happy-sounding music and lyrics that paint a little darker picture. But Brian kind of started that. This is one of the first ones that did it that way. After the rest of the Beach Boys came back from Japan, Mike Love was quoted as saying, even the happy songs are sad in reference to this one. Yeah, I remember that. I think my favorite part of the song starts right around the 150 mark in the second chorus on the word home when everything is building, the tempo is pushing a bit, and then they hit that word and everything slows down. There's awesome harmony and and great refrain for a split second. And then all of a sudden they jump right back into the, the fast pace. It's another great example of how well they can control tone and mesh their, their voices. Something that we haven't really touched on yet, but I I thought it was really cool in all the old videos that I could pull up from them in the studio with all of them standing in a circle around the same microphone 
it was it was really impressive that it didn't look like there was any hesitation at all. They knew each other so well, probably from growing up together and singing that everything was in rhythm. Everything seemed to be timed perfectly. I mean, I'm sure there were multiple takes and it didn't always go so well. But when you see them all together singing, it's really impressive because that's that's not something easy to do. It takes a lot of work and practice to understand your vocal counterparts uh, well enough to mesh like that. And they, they seem to do it so naturally. It's really fun to see. Yeah. And actually, I think you're right about that. I know I mentioned earlier that Brian was such a perfectionist that he would do multiple takes. But I think all of that is, or most of that anyway, is in reference to all the music that he was just painstakingly working on, you know, measure by measure and trying to get the musicians to do it. I think he had those vocal parts in his head by that time that when the rest of the Beach Boys came back, you're right, they were such professionals and they've been doing it together so long that I, th- I think the vocal parts came relatively quickly. They, they just threw those right down. Brian basically just hammered it out on the piano and taught them their part, and they just jumped into the studio and, and did it. Yeah, that, that's, that speaks volumes on, on Brian's genius as a, a musical composer as well, and also his understanding or connection to his brothers and cousin and friend for them to be away and out of the country while he's in the studio writing the lyrics and music to an entire album, knowing exactly who should sing which parts, where to place them, and who will be most favorable for the message and and emotions that are trying to be conveyed by the music. Yeah, and actually, I'm glad you brought that up because this one specifically has an interesting story about that because Al Jardine said that Brian lined them all up to basically try out for the lead vocal on this song, so he didn't quite have that figured out yet when they had got there. And Al naturally thought that he would be the one singing lead because he was the one that brought the arrangement to Brian's okay. attention. He said it was it was like interviewing for a job. He said it was pretty funny because he, he said he said Brian didn't like any of us. <laughs> he said he said his vocal had was a much more mellow approach because in his mind he was still thinking of that folk idiom as opposed to what Brian had reworked for more of a Beach Boys sound. And so for the radio they needed that more rock approach. And that's how Brian and Mike ended up singing this one. It's on the, on the final recording. It's Brian singing the first and third verse, and Mike loves singing the second verse. Well, that's a cool backstory. As part of the reworking of this song, both musically, he also changed some things lyrically. Originally, it it said, "I feel so break up," and he changed it to, "I feel so broke up." That's right. And instead of Broke into the people's trunk is what the original folk song had it. He changed it to broke in the captain's trunk. The The most famous change was he changed the lyric of this is the worst trip since I was born to this is the worst trip I've ever been on. And some speculate that given that this was sort of the high point for his drug experimentation, that that might have been a reference to psychedelics and like an acid trip. Yeah, that could be. But since since there were other meanings that could be attached to that word trip the rest of the band members were probably okay with it we'll talk about another song later that they weren't totally okay with the lyrics and inevitably ended up taking that a different way mike would describe brian as having dog ears throughout the making of this album hearing things that nobody else was hearing and painstakingly making musicians do things over and over again i learned in listening to this album that 
I definitely don't have dog ears because I'd read in advance of listening to this album with headphones that that original line, I feel so break up, that they had changed to I feel so broke up. One of the vocalists gets that flipped around in the first chorus. It's either Brian, which would be really funny, <laughs> yeah, it would. or Carl that sing the line, I feel so break up instead of I feel so broke up. I listened to it on mono, I listened to it on stereo, I had headphones on. I couldn't hear it, so I guess I don't have Brian's dog ear gift, <laughs> which either is a blessing or a curse. I definitely didn't pick it up because they would have been saying that word at the same time, so you'd think it would have clashed a little bit. Unless the people who said broke said it loud enough that break was just faint in the background and we didn't pick it up. I'll have to go look for that too. Did you read that in advance? Were you listening for no. that? This is news to okay. me, so I'll have to go check that out. You tell, you tell me if you in fact have dog ears because <laughs> I I could not hear it. <sighs> I think we mentioned this album was recorded ahead of Pet Sounds. It was six months before Pet Sounds started to take shape in Brian's mind that this song was recorded, and it was already a top single. It was customary for record companies in the day to release singles that would precede the album. And this song had already been released and then ended up on Pet Sounds as well. Let's get into the lyrics a a little bit more. That most rememberable line, I feel so broke up, I want to go home. That's a a powerful statement in and of itself. And as we've mentioned, this is based on a Caribbean folk song from the early 1900s. So the words are not written by the Beach Boys, but in looking through them and knowing their backstory and... The rest of the album's concept or theme. I'm curious what this may have meant to Brian and why he decided to include it here and if there are some personal connections to those lyrics of feeling broken up and uh, wanting to go home, being out to sea, being with a bunch of people or on a journey and, and feeling like you've had enough, you want to get out of there, you want to go back to a safe, comfortable place in your home. That's really interesting. I didn't think about that, but you're right. This was around the time that he was, you could use the metaphor of set sail with the rest of his band as they were touring and, and doing things that yeah, that's right. he was getting homesick or mentally he was just breaking down, which is something that you can definitely imagine if you're aboard a boat that long right. with, the, with the same people in close quarters, which kind of is probably what it's like when you're touring as a band, you go out on stage, and even though you're around a whole bunch of people, you're still basically, it's basically your crew up there on stage. Mm-hmm. You're going to the hotel rooms with them. You're on small flights, and of course, we know that's where Brian really broke down on that yeah. on that plane. And whether it was conscious or not, or if it's just in retrospect in reading these lyrics, they're back to whether or not this album has a conceptual theme. This one stands out from the other ones lyrically, if you look at it, at surface level, but you can make that tie that there is something about this old folk song, which again, they didn't write, that ties into some of the themes of the rest of this album and maybe what Brian and the band were going through at the time. And prior to that major panic attack that he had on the on the flight that eventually led to him determining that he shouldn't be on the road touring and performing live anymore with the band, he had struggled for a, f- a few years or more and there were some live performances that he wasn't able to get up for and go out on stage because of the anxiety. So it had been building for some time. Absolutely. I'm thinking now, after you made that connection between setting sail 
out to sea with your crew members and being on the road touring with your band, that potentially there's a deeper metaphor to the word home for Brian, and that's the music studio. Let me get back where I feel most at home. I want to go home. Yeah. Wow, that's Let me go home because I was mentioning before that home for most people is typically a, a safe, comfortable place, but... That might not be something that Brian would say because we know his his home life growing up wasn't the best. And Mm. his escape from reality, his escape from some of the difficulties that he grew up around was always music. And even into his adulthood, it was music. And so for him, anytime he was going through a stressful time in life, whether that was as a child facing the pressure and abuse from, from his father or as an adult feeling like he's got the weight of the world on his shoulders leading this major band that's getting all this attention and the pressure to keep up with the Beatles. Anytime he would get out of that comfort zone or be in a place where it maybe provoked some anxiety and and other mental health issues that he struggled with over the years, music was always what kept him grounded. And that's ultimately what got him out of that slump eventually and into his solo project later on in life. So for him, music is probably as close to home as anything. Yeah, and the studio. Exactly, yeah. You have to give home you have to a, pick a location. Place, right. That I think the studio is it. That's really well said. Yeah, that's cool. I'm almost wondering now when Brian was first exposed to this song, because it had been around forever, and if he had heard that Caribbean folk song, or if maybe he heard the Johnny Cash song, or that Kingston trio, or maybe somebody else performed it. I wonder how long it was in his memory you know, in the in the works of, hey, I should do a rendition of this song and put her on one of our albums someday, since it'd been floating around for decades. Yeah. That's definitely one of the questions I would want to ask Brian Wilson if I were able to interview him. I'd be curious when he first heard this song and the thought development to do his own take on it and put her on this album. I know you had posed that question to Doug and Gary during our interview. What what What's the one question that they would ask if they could to Brian Wilson? And I would I would definitely have to add that one to the list. Yeah, I would imagine that he heard it in one context or another, given I really thought that was interesting what you mentioned about Johnny Cash being somebody that had done it. I'm, I'm sure he had heard that version in the Kingston Trio. But it sounds like he didn't really think of it as being something that they would rework as a Beach Boys song until Al Jardine pushed him into dry, trying it because those versions didn't sound like the Beach Boys and Al heard something in it that he thought would be reworkable into their style and I'm glad that he insisted. Yeah, well that's definitely a, a really cool track and a fun history behind it. I'm glad they decided to include this on the album because it's a great song. But we move on from this one to, in my opinion, an even better song. This is my favorite track on the album, track eight, titled God Only Knows. But long as there are stars above you, 
favorite track on the album. I have to say this is probably mine too. I know we all four of us mentioned that when we did the interview episode with Doug and Gary, but I knew this one before Pet Sounds. And as much as I love the album as a whole and discovering new songs, there was just something that stuck with me about God Only Knows. It's just such a pretty song. I, I think it's maybe one of the prettiest songs ever written in rock history. And I know I'm not alone in my thoughts on that, both fans and other musicians alike, but there's just something special about it. I agree, this is my favorite. Yeah, that opening instrumental is amazing. It really draws you in, and uh, it's, yeah, mesmerizing. Lyrically, you know, a, a relatively simple song with a powerful message, but there's not too many words to this song. No, there's not. I think that's something Doug had really pointed out in the interview, going through those lyrics, read, reading them out to us. It's it's pretty simplistic, but at the same time, it's, it's really deep and powerful, the message behind it. Yeah, and it is interesting that there's more to it than even just simple words, even though there's not a lot of them. I was struck by it. I mean, how many, how many love songs start off with a line, I may not always love you? What a twist to then go into that, into the next line, but as long as there are stars above you, it, it puts you on your heels right at the beginning because mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty sounding song. The song's called God Only Knows, and then the first line is, I may not always love you. Obviously, this is Tony Asher that did the writing for this, and he said that he was initially afraid that maybe Brian wouldn't like that line, but there was no fighting from Brian on it. He, he said he really did like it. Asher said that if Brian were to have objected to that as an opening line, he said he was willing to fight to the death on, on this one, as much as he was talking about being Brian's interpreter for lyrics. Asher was adamant that the, this first line is, I may not always love you, and I, I think it's quite a powerful way to start off a song, and it's showing that it, this is, they're at an unconventional point in contrast to their prior work. I think there's a few ways you can look at that first line. One being that I, I, I may not, and you have to add some filler words, but when, when I think about that, one way to look at it is that I may not always be able to love you or have that ability. Uh, and then in verse two, it says, if you should ever leave me. So potentially he's thinking, I may not always have that chance. You may not be with me uh, forever. That's one way that it, it could be looked at. Because he immediately says, but as long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. So he's not necessarily saying that there's ever going to be a time that he doesn't have love in his heart for this person, but that maybe he won't have the ability because that person might not be there. She might leave him. But another way to think about it, too, is by looking at the word love as as a verb, as a, a doing word. Uh, not necessarily saying that he doesn't love her, that he's not in love with her, but I may not 
always be able to show you that I love you. I, I may not always do the things, say the things that you need to see and hear for you to feel that, but just know that as long as there's stars above you, as long as there's a world, as long as there's this place and we're together, you don't have to doubt whether or not I, I have love for you. You know, I'll, I'll make you so sure about it. So there's you know, a lot wrapped up in that different angles. You could probably take it. Those are really great thoughts. And yeah, it does show that even in that simplicity, there's a lot to be read into it. Also, as far as a discussion point with the lyrics themselves, I know Brian was really tentative about putting the word God in the lyrics, both Brian and Asher. It, it just wasn't something that was done back then in pop songs. And they were afraid it was going to, on both ends, be too sacrilegious for the religious people and too religious sounding for secular radio, and that it would just alienate the song as being something that would be played. I think they recognized they had a special song here that was going to be a hit, but they were really afraid of leaving the word God in there. I saw something about that, too. I can't remember who was being interviewed. It might have been Brian or possibly somebody else, but they had said that that use of the word God or the idea of God was not any one particular God, but this idea of an all-knowing or spiritual, powerful being above and beyond what we can physically understand or appreciate on earth. Yeah, I think I read that same thing too. He said, God is love, God is you, God is me, God is everything right here in this room. You're right, sort of more of like a spiritual concept Mm -hmm. as opposed to one particular God. Yeah. Brian had said that Carl is singing lead on this. I know in our interview episode with Doug and Gary, Doug had pointed that out, and, and he is correct on that. It's it's Carl singing lead. Initially, Brian thought it was going to be him, but he wanted something that sounded a little bit more tenderness and, and some sweetness in it, and the youngest Wilson brother, Carl, had that in his voice, and that's what he wanted to deliver the message of this song. Brian described his younger brother as being the most truly religious person that he knew, and that combined with the innocent and younger-sounding vocal is what led Carl to being the one singing lead on this song. And I think he does a fantastic job. I'm sure that was difficult for Brian to give up that role if he saw himself singing lead, but I think it was a good choice. Yeah, I imagine Brian was pretty attached to this song, but the art was more important to him than anything else, and giving that up to Carl I think wasn't hard when he looked at it through that lens. I read that he was smoking marijuana a lot when he first heard Rubber Soul, and he was listening to Rubber Soul and was so inspired that he went right to the piano and recorded this song. So this we talked about Pet Sounds as a whole being influenced by Rubber Soul, but this one was directly influenced by that and the marijuana. And yeah, this, this song right. was pounded out right after a listening session to Rubber Soul. I want to say this song got a little bit of pushback from one of the other band members, possibly Dennis. I think I saw that either in the movie Love and Mercy or I read about it somewhere that Dennis or somebody else in the band had questioned Brian why they'd be singing a song that has a lyric, so what good would living do me, that it was too sad and depressing and that that wasn't the Beach Boys. So this was another one that I believe I read got challenged and uh, you can see why because it, it does take a more spiritual somewhat dark at times approach to understanding life and love and everything wrapped up in that. But surrounding that line in verse two or preceding that line, I should say, 
starts out by saying, if you should ever leave me, well, life would still go on. Believe me. The world could show nothing to me. So what good would living do me? So he, he says, if, if you leave, believe me, life will still go on. But at the same time, there'd be nothing left for me. So what would be the point? Like, what's the point of living if you're not there because you're my everything, but you know, life would still go on in some capacity. So those lines do conflict some, but you can see how they depict somebody who's confused in their head with this idea of losing somebody and moving on without them. I liked that line of what good would living do me because we've heard in a lot of songs that line, I couldn't live without you, is something that almost sounds like tried at this point because we've you've heard it so many times. It sounds like something you'd see in a Hallmark card for Valentine's Day or something. <laughs> But to flip it around and say, what good would living do me, even though it's saying the same thing, there's something a lot more powerful and, and a little bit more desperate about it that I think gives that line a little bit more weight. And I'm glad that they chose to say it that way. Yeah, and that's the part that can be taken as being a little bit darker. And I can see where some of the rest of the Beach Boys maybe would have pushed back against that. But I think you have to push the barriers a little bit in the lyrics to really describe what that feeling or mindset is like uh, for somebody going through something like that. Brian said that his and Asher's intention with this song was to create the feeling of being blind, but in being blind, you can see more. That's really cool. Yeah, that's a powerful statement. What do you make of that? I read that too, and I think that just means that sometimes, like what we're doing with Album Divers there are so many other things going on that we see, that we hear, that cloud our brain and take up brain space. And whether it's true or not, there's always that concept of if somebody's blind, they can hear better. One of their other senses takes over. Oh, yeah. Good point. Maybe one of those senses being what you hear or how you feel. So in that blindness, they're seeing, not literally seeing, but they're, they're experiencing more because they're shutting out some of those other things. Yeah, that's my interpretation of the message they were trying to convey there. When you're flooded with so much information or, or distracted by whatever's in the way, sometimes you can't see beyond that and you can't see very clearly. So if you can block that all out, the metaphor being blind, then you can see more because you got that stuff out of the way and it kind of gives you a blank canvas or open mind to let something else in that you couldn't before. Yeah, and it reminds me of and ties back into the sentiment of don't talk, put your head on my shoulder, where they're talking about basically blocking out so many of the senses, close your eyes and be still, don't talk. Right. You know, just be Yeah. trying to soak it all in. Definitely, yeah. And then at the end of the song, I went back and listened to that a couple of times because I found it really fascinating. For one, it's another great example of their ability to harmonize and sing in a refrain or round of sorts. Mm -hmm. So I counted the number of God only knows and it, and it trails off. It slowly gets quieter and quieter and quieter, but I tried to focus on just that phrase and block everything else out because there's a lot going on musically in that end to the song. And I got 19, 19 times. They say the phrase God only knows within that short time frame. So what I took away from that in thinking back to the message of the song is that after 
thinking about how much they're trying to love this person, knowing that they can't always do that. And then also trying to process what it would be like to go on without them. What they arrive at at the end of the song is God only knows. And they're repeating this idea or mantra in their head. God only knows. God only knows. And that it's impossible for you to know that only something spiritual or of a higher knowledge would be able to understand that round was not a common thing to do in pop music at the time. Brian said of the round, he said, I liked rounds because they made it seem like the song was something eternal. So that what Brian said about that sort of ties exactly ah, into what you said. There's interesting. about God and eternity. Yeah, because outside it's... Outside of the lyrics, there's something eternal about a round. Yeah, it's this, uh, this revolving idea that uh, keeps coming. Exactly. Very cool. This song has gone on to garner a lot of acclaim by both musicians and music critics alike. It was voted number 25 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. And in 2007, Paul McCartney said, God Only Knows is one of the few songs that reduces me to tears every time I hear it. Wow. It's really just a love song, but it's brilliantly done. It shows the genius of Brian. I've actually performed it with him, and I'm afraid to say that during the sound check, I broke down. Oh. It was just too much to stand there singing this song that does my head in and stand there singing it with Brian. Man, what a compliment. It is. And Brian responded apprehensively to that admiration in the 70s. He said, if God Only Knows is the greatest song ever written, then I'll never write anything as good again. And if I never write anything as good again, then I'm finished. <laughs> And I thought, man, what a Brian way to respond <laughs> yeah. to that because only Brian. <laughs> he he's so much in his head and so self-critical and even when you have what could be argued as the greatest rock musicians of all time saying that the song you wrote reduces me to tears, he still finds a way to be self-critical about that what that means for him. Another interesting fact about the recording of this song, the song features three vocals. So we, we talked about Carl being on lead, which I want to mention too wasn't a common thing at the time. Carl had sung lead on a couple songs, and he'd be featured more going forward, but it wasn't a common thing for Carl to be singing lead. It was typically Mike Love doing that. So you got Carl on lead, and then Brian, and then Bruce Johnston, who was a touring musician at this point with the Beach Boys. He took over when Brian had laid off touring to be at the studio. So those three vocals are, are singing, but by the time they got to the end of this recording session, Carl was just really tired, and so he decided to go home. So it ends up on that outro part being Brian singing two parts. He sings the top and the bottom, and then Bruce Johnson filling in that middle part. So throughout the song, there's those three voices, and at the end, there is still three voices, but two of them are Brian no Carl by the end of the song because he just got tired and went home. Oh, wow. That's funny. Well, definitely a great song. Obviously, many music critics and fans agree it's one of their greatest hits. I think it's a song that really shows what, what it can be like to be in love and tangled up in all the emotions of a relationship and everything surrounding that. And it's something we can all relate to in some way, shape, or form. It's probably why it speaks to so many people. I agree. I think this song is just about as perfect as it gets. Well, on that note, let's move on to track nine. I know. 
This one's titled, I Know There's an Answer. another really fun song lots of really cool instruments including my favorite that bass harmonica in the background man that oh man that's so that cool. really draws you in that's a, that's a cool sound i i had to do a little research with with your help trevor to figure out what that sound was because it wasn't familiar to me but i thought that was really cool this song was written during Brian's second acid trip, so the story goes. And he at one time stated, yeah, I had taken a few drugs and had gotten into that kind of thing. I, I guess it just came up naturally. But uh, this was kind of a, a reflection to some degree on his experiences with that. Right. And in fact, originally this song was called Hang On To Your Ego, which is more of a drug reference or of that culture I suppose it's not really a drug reference per se but about the effects of drugs kind of losing yourself yeah having these out-of-body experiences and needing to stay grounded and hang on to your emotions right and Mike Love particularly objected to that title he, he didn't want to be singing a song that would reference drugs both I think his personal feelings on them, but I think Mike Love was also always thinking about, I remember at the beginning of the episode quoting Mike as saying, don't fuck with the formula. Mm -hmm. I think he was also yeah. looking at it going, not only am I not really cool with this lifestyle, I also don't think this is going to work out very well from a business standpoint in putting these lyrics in there. Yeah, and that that's interesting to me. I don't know if that was more Mike's character and there was moral conflict there or if... A lot of the Beach Boys fans and listeners weren't really into that scene because, I mean, it was released in 66, so I thought it would be pretty mainstream that people in the music scene hanging out on the beach and whatnot were probably starting to get into drug experimentation a little bit, unless it was more so that hippie crowd and Mike didn't want to be a part of that, didn't want them to be lumped in with those guys. I bet their image played a big role in it. I mean... Beach Boys image up to this point, and even after this, were clean cut, be true to your school, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's true. And then, you know, it was 66, so it was probably right on the tail end of that. The Beatles hadn't quite gotten into their psychedelic phase, and it may have just felt like it was a little bit too early. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the Beatles. Do you, off the top of your head, know when Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was released? It was on Sgt. Pepper. Oh, Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So had that been on Rubber Soul and the mainstream media and pop culture had accepted it since the Beatles were talking about it, then maybe Mike wouldn't have been as opposed to the Beach Boys bringing that up. But then on the album that was inspired by Pet Sounds, the Beatles ended up singing pretty openly about that, although they don't specifically say it. Everybody knows now and probably knew back then what they were talking about. And it hasn't really caught much flack over the years. Everybody knows Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds as 
one of the Beatles' biggest hits. Yeah, they may have just been a little bit ahead of it with that, and also it may just not have fit their image. Yeah, that's true. But I could see Brian maybe listening to that song on Sgt. Pepper and saying, see, Mike, we, we should have done it. It should have been called Hang On To Your Ego. <laughs> we were ahead of them. We could have beat them to it. <laughs> <laughs> Very well could be. I think it's funny that Mike was so insistent on changing the title of this song, but the verses, which still seem to fit that original theme and have reference to some of that culture, he either didn't know what Brian was talking about or didn't seem to care. He, he dug his heels in to change the title, or maybe it was some sort of compromise between the two. Yeah, that could be. But nonetheless, the, the, the verses still fit that whole hang on to your ego title a little bit more than a, I know there's an answer. I don't know what I would think of this song if it was Hang On To Your Ego. And you can hear that version. There is a version of this song with Hang On To Your Ego out there. But because my first exposure to it was this one, I Know There's An Answer, I just can't hear it outside of that context. And I, I want it to be I Know There's An Answer. And maybe I'd feel exactly the opposite if it had been released as Hang On To Your Ego. Did they release that song Hang On To Your Ego on one of the other albums then? I don't think it's on any particular album. I, I want to say maybe it was just released as a side somewhere. Okay. Something that fans got, maybe much later. I'm not sure the history of when that version came out, but it's out there now if you want to listen to it. Yeah, I see how you can look through the lyrics and still make it a reference to an acid trip. I mean, they even have the word trip, but to say they trip through their day and waste all their thoughts at night, that's pretty open-ended and you could make it about anything. But I think Mike was probably concerned that if we title the song, Hang On To Your Ego, which is something well-known, a phrase that's already part of that community or attached to that scene, then everybody before even listening to the song would say, yes, this is a drug song. But by taking that out, it is kind of up for interpretation. Musically, you mentioned that bass harmonica. That's Tommy Morgan from The Wrecking Crew. If you're listening to this and you've never seen a bass harmonica, I think it's worth looking it up right now. It's huge. I mean, it's it's like a it's like a burrito or <laughs> something that he's holding up to his face. And then the sound that comes out of it, you were talking about it. You, you were texting me going, what's that sound? Is it like some sort of rusty crank or something like that? And I had already gone through that rabbit hole to figure out what it was, but I, I could easily understand why you would think that because it, it doesn't sound like a harmonica to me. Yeah, I was drawn to it right away, but I couldn't remember ever hearing that sound in the past. But I was, I was really curious immediately after hearing that, what that was coming from. True to that. Phil Spector Wall of Sound production. This song features the doubling of the bass. Brian would talk about layering instruments as like creating a new instrument. And I think I mentioned he described it as playing the studio. And this this song, among other ones, features that. Originally this was gonna be Brian singing this song, but after they revised the lyrics, it ended up being Mike and Al on the verses. Brian still sings the chorus of this song. I want to talk a little bit about verse one. I was just looking over that here. It says, I, I know so many people who think they can do it alone. They isolate their heads and stay in their safety zones. You think if we stay along the reference of it being a, a song about an acid trip, could that mean that people are 
writing music, creating alone without anything else to, to boost their creativity. They isolate their heads and they stay in their safety zones. They don't branch out and experiment and take things a step further. Almost like being on drugs is like being with somebody that you're not totally by yourself or yourself, that you're slightly detached and that there's this extra realm that you're tapping into via the influence of the drugs. Yeah, I think that first verse is referencing somebody that is uptight as they talk about in that second verse. They say they come on like they're peaceful, but inside they're so uptight. These are people that feel like they have control over everything, that they can, if they put enough effort into their lives, they can have control over it. And then the original chorus of hang on to your ego is almost like a mocking of that, of saying you're not willing to let go of that part of yourself. Yeah, that's a good point. And then in the chorus, it says, I know there's an answer. I know now, but I have to find it by myself. So earlier in the song, he's saying, I know so many people who think they can do it alone as if they need help. But then in the chorus, I know there's an answer and I can find it by myself alone. That's a bit contradictory. Yeah, and I I think that might be where the compromise between Mike and Brian was. I, I kind of agree with you. The revisions sort of contradict each other yeah, now. Yeah, it throws off the message. But like I said before, just because I've heard this song so many times the original way, I can't imagine it not being I know there's an answer. And I think if we take out the message, just the sound of I know there's an answer, it sounds more like something you would sing to me. And again, I, I recognize I'm viewing it through the lens of what I'm used to, but hang on to your ego. It just sounds like a harder thing to sing. Yeah. Just phonetically. Right. Yeah, it would be. So despite the contradiction, I guess I'm okay with it. Yeah. It adds an interesting element to the album. Yep. Another footnote. Right. In their history. Should we move on to track 10? Let's move on to track 10. The song's called Here Today. was kind of interesting how it started off it starts with the word it starts and they come immediately basically before any of the music that i thought was a cool way to start a song yeah it's really a a song about being in lust uh with somebody not not necessarily love but i I get the sense it's a new love affair if you will i mean it even mentions that in, in the words a brand new love affair is such a beautiful thing but if you're not careful, think about the pain it can bring. You've got to keep in mind love is here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's here and gone so fast. And that's just speaking to the fragility of a, a new relationship when you don't totally know somebody. Yeah, and I, I think the interesting thing for me about this one lyrically is the perspective because that line that says, well, you know, I hate to be a downer, but I'm the guy she left before you found her. It's at that point that you realize that 
the protagonist of this song, the person singing, is another guy singing to presumably this guy. Yeah, so it, right, it's, yeah. It's actually a song between two men singing to each other mm-hmm. about a woman. It's not a man singing to a woman. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I th- think that's really interesting. I don't know any other songs that are like that. It's mm-hmm. like a former lover of this girl warning the current guy that she broke my heart, she could break yours too, so watch out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not It's not like a jealous ex who's doing this in, in a negative or malicious way. It generally sounds like somebody saying, hey, you know, you think she's perfect. You know, you think maybe this time will be an exception, but... I hate to break you the bad news. I was I was you a little bit ago. She she left me, so watch out or keep your guard up. Yeah, that's a really interesting decision to make for a song. I don't know if this one was primarily Asher. I know I talked about in the history how their process being collaborative, they would just sort of sit around and talk and Asher would kind of interpret for Brian and basically be the main person writing the words, but I don't know how this one came about that you're talking about the question that you would ask Brian this would be on my list of how did the lyrics to hear today come about how much of that was an idea from your head that Asher interpreted did Asher come up with that on his own because it's really unique I I don't know any songs that feature that type of a message from you know one male to another about a woman like that yeah, there's so many characters and storylines involved with all the members of the band that even though Brian and Asher were the two involved with, with writing the, the songs for the most part, they could have been based on things they had seen with other band members or about general life experiences that, that everybody goes through and maybe not that uh, specific or personal to them. But it's definitely an interesting song on the album. It stands out from the others i i think lyrically it was a really good song it sheds light on some challenges that people go through in a relationship musically i thought it was a little different than the others it almost had a broadway theater type sound to it very peppy and dramatic sounding in the music yeah, I read, and I don't know enough about classical music to be able to say anything more intelligible than this, but I read that that break in the song was influenced by Bach. to some of the other ones had more of a classical musical influence which again would not be a common thing in a pop song and it's funny to have a classical influence be sort of a rebellion because they wrote pop songs and so sort of the most for lack of a better term punk thing that they could do (laughs) is pull in classical elements Um, And again, I don't know enough about it to be able to make more comment than that, but I just read that this one had a lot of Bach influence. It does have a real classical feel to it now that you mentioned that, and maybe that's why it stood out from the other songs. And that makes me question, now, now that we're wondering who was behind the lyrics, whether or not it was really meaningful to Brian. If if he wasn't as attached to the lyrics, then 
perhaps the music wouldn't quite sound the same either if it wasn't really his work maybe he would put a different spin on the music to fit those lyrics and that's why the song comes out sounding like it doesn't totally fit another thing that i would like to ask brian as i come up with other thoughts and questions in my head would be what was it about tony asher that made you think he would be somebody that would be good to collaborate with because tony asher was he's only 26 but he was still a couple years older than brian and his previous work was you know commercials and and it wasn't maybe to the depth that brian was thinking that he wanted for pet sounds i think in reading that he put a lot of emphasis on the meeting he had i think it was a couple years before when he met asher in a studio and there was just something i think about their interaction that made him think that there would be a connection there but it must have been something that he couldn't really put into words as ironically as that may seem because I think it was more the personal interaction that gave him that feeling of connection with Tony Asher than it was his actual work leading up to this. Yeah, maybe a gut feeling, Yeah, an important conversation or something that was said where he said, you know what, I, I, I think this guy might be somebody that uh, would work well with me and ran with it. Well, he got it right. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, let's move on. We have a few songs left on the album. Next up, track 11, I Just Wasn't Made For These Times. I keep looking for a place to fit in Where I can speak my mind And I've been trying hard to find the people That I won't leave behind They say I got mentioned earlier that there are three songs that Tony Asher contributed to musically. This was one of them. The lyrics were written by both of them, as was common. Brian and Tony had collaborated on that with ruminations on romance and the loss of innocence involved with growing up. And I thought it really seemed to tie into how he might be feeling now musically, feeling like he didn't really fit in and it was sort of him against the world with creating this piece of art. And if it's read that way, I think some interesting predictions about how this album would be taken when it was released to the world. Yeah, in the last song, we were debating whether or not the lyrics related personally to Brian. And if not, maybe that's why it came off a little different sound. I think in this song, it's pretty clear that it is about Brian based on what we know of his life and experiences. And in his autobiography, he stated in reference to this song I Just Wasn't Made For These Times was telling a self-portrait of my troubled psyche and that I was too advanced for my time. So clearly it's discussing his 
complexity and thinking and how sometimes he feels like he isn't able to totally connect to people or that they're not able to understand what he's trying to say. That's what I was thinking too. And I was imagining that if it was that obvious for us hearing this album and thinking about the lyrics, how it, awkward it might have been for the band members coming back to sing them. You know, things like, I keep looking for a place to fit where I can speak my mind. And I've been trying hard to find people that I won't leave behind. Yeah, right. Would be sort of an ominous words to sing as your brothers and bandmates if you're taking that the way that we are of saying... I haven't found anybody that I can speak my mind around or that feels like I fit with. And and it's kind of been true leading up to this point where he's done with the beach sound, he's done with that California sound, he's trying to do something different. And on his end, feeling vulnerable of like, will will my brothers and bandmates understand this? And maybe them feeling like, do you not feel like we we get you? Is that going to unravel this band? Yeah, that makes me think of this part in the movie Love and Mercy where some of the band members were trying to convince Brian to go with them on that trip. And he said, no, no, you guys go on, go ahead. I'm going to stay back here. So I imagine while they were out and about overseas, they were probably wondering why he wasn't there. And in the movie too, it shows they, they came back and said, oh man, Brian, it was such a great time. We realized that there's more than just California girls. These these girls in Japan were amazing. It was a blast. And so I'm sure while they were over there having those good experiences, they were thinking, gosh, it'd be great if Brian was here. I wish he'd be with us and be a part of it. And, you know, they already knew that he was going through some difficult times off and on and wasn't maybe always the most happy or, or pleasant and, and self-critical. And so I'm sure they probably felt like they couldn't totally get through to him, reach him, and, and help him with those issues, so it had to be difficult uh, for them. And then to come back, like you were saying, and hear those lyrics to this song and almost have that confirmed that, yes, this is how our, our brother feels. He, he feels as much that he can't connect with us as we probably feel like we're lacking that ability to be there for him like we want to be because we're on a different wavelength at times. Exactly. And I think it's easy to put yourself in Brian's shoes because he's the one that's predominantly writing this album and that we're sort of identifying with within the lyrics. But it's easy for me to think about it from his brothers and other band members' perspective, too. That that would be a hard place for them to be in. I'm sure that they loved the Beach Boys maybe in a different way, like Mike Love being more attached to that California sound, but nonetheless, it was still an important thing to him. This was their career. This was their livelihood. It was their passion in different forms. And I think that would be scary for them too. That's why I was curious in going through this. I know that among diehard Beach Boys fans, Mike Love is often the bad guy. Yeah. I got that sense too in reading. As much as I think Brian's really the genius behind their music, I didn't end up hating Mike Love, I I can sympathize with him in some ways too. Now I know that there's the criticism of maybe him trying to insert himself in legal battles and lyrics, and maybe I didn't get deep into that enough to formulate a a full opinion, but at the point I'm at now, I I can sympathize with both sides of the argument. I think both sides could feel vulnerable. I mean, think think of this line. So every time I get the inspiration to go change things around, no one wants to help me look for places where new things might be found. Right, that, yeah. That's, is that not Pet Sounds in a nutshell, him all by himself in the studio mm-hmm. trying to change things around and do things differently? And then not getting the support immediately, having right. to 
yeah. twist their arm and convince them and say, hey, look, guys, we've we've put out 10 albums already that all kind of sound the same that are centered around girls' cars surfing in California and the beach vibe. What What's so bad about me going out on a limb and trying to do something else? How come we can't show a different side of our music? And, you know, that had to be tough for Brian to already be self-critical and then also not get that immediate feedback or support that would have helped him move beyond that criticism of the music. Yeah, and I think to confirm our feelings that this is maybe the most Brian in any song, lyrically, Asher's quoted as saying, in many other songs when Brian would express a feeling, I would say, oh yes, I've had those feelings. Maybe not in the same way or the same degree, but I understood them. But this one I didn't relate to. It was more trying to interpret what he was feeling than having this joint feeling in our various ways. Interestingly enough, this song was originally going to be Dennis singing lead, but Brian ended up singing lead on this one, and I think that's very fitting given how personal I think these lyrics seem to be to how he was feeling at the time. It would have been strange, I think, to have Dennis, who I don't know about this song particularly, but in in many instances was more vocal about Mm -hmm. not wanting to change their sound, if he's the one that ended up singing these lyrics, I just think that wouldn't fit. Yeah. There's also lyrics in this song that definitely point more inward and make you feel like Brian acknowledges the fact that a lot of the barriers are within him. Lines like, each time things start to happen again, I think I got something good going for myself, but what goes wrong? You know, and then the chorus, sometimes I feel very sad. Can't find nothing I can put my heart and soul into. I I guess I just wasn't made for these times. He's really blaming himself. That's true. As if th- the pressure is on him to to do something more uh, to fit in, despite the fact that there's there's probably that element too where he's thinking about well maybe it could be these other people. Maybe I'm with the wrong crowd or I'm not surrounded by the people that I can uh, really connect to. But but something tells me with us knowing how much of a perfectionist he was and how critical he was with the music that. He probably did a lot of that to himself, too. He's maybe in his head too much thinking and, and uh, stewing over some stuff and couldn't get out of his own way, and that's what led to a lot of the anxiety and, and panic attacks from not being able to deal with all the conversations he was having with himself in his head. Well said. It's not like he's looking at this in the context of a superiority that he wishes other people could get to. I think he's being pretty self-critical, which, again, is pretty typical of him. Even the line of, they say I got brains, but they ain't yeah, doing me no exactly. good. Yeah, exactly. I was just thinking about it that. It is another one that I think ties that yep. in. And even if he's going to admit on some level that there's something special about him, mm-hmm. he follows that right up with, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, I, yeah. All these, not, all these, it's not something I, I'm glad I have in this instance. Right, yeah. All these people are telling me I'm smart, I got a, a brain, and they all seem so proud of me. And there, there's even a, a reference to that in the movie love and mercy as well when he's he's out in the alley and i can't remember who he's talking to but the guy says hey look i've i've worked with lots of musicians the best like the guys you know that are at the top and you know you got something special kid you're different yeah i was one of the members of the wrecking crew yeah and he's like even 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 phil even phil specter he's like yeah even phil specter and and brian's like oh man no way like yeah and he, then he kind of has this this glass look over his face and i think he stares off at the wall or down at the ground and 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 it's almost this this feeling taking over him like oh shit i mean 
am I really that big? Like, am, am I really that good? Do people, do people look at me like I'm somebody? And, um, like to me, that's a, a deeper sign that he doesn't look at himself that way. He doesn't value himself the way everybody else is uh, valuing him. And that's kind of a confliction where he's, he's trying to sort through that. And he's like, well, you know, they're telling me all these good things about me. I'm smart. I got these brains, but it doesn't seem to be doing me no good because, you know, look where I am. I'm here with all these negative thoughts and still trying to figure out my place in the world. Yeah, I, I think that's really well said. There's some interesting things musically that tie in lyrically as well. I don't know if you were aware had read that there's a Spanish sung background vocals in this song. No, I didn't read about that. Yeah, in the outro, there's some Spanish words. The words are, O cuando seré un día seré, which is translated, when will I be, one day I will be. And that's just repeated over and over again. Huh, I guess I didn't really hear that. Back to I don't have the dog ears, I I read it, and if you listen real closely, you can hear it, but it's not something that's going to jump out at you. I I must have tuned it out thinking the song was over. Yeah, it, it's really interesting to hear, but I love those those words. When when will I be is the question, and then he answers it, one day I will be. It's not a direct answer, but it's saying, yeah. I don't know when, but I know I will be. This, this will work out somehow. Yeah. And it's interesting that he camouflaged them in a way. He didn't just sing the words, when will I be, one day I will be. It's almost like he was self-conscious about that. He, even Even something that definite about himself to say one day I will be is something that he was maybe too afraid to assert. Yeah, that's very cool. I like I like that as well. What was the, the Spanish again? O cuando seré un día seré. That's cool. I really like that. Also musically, we talked about it in our interview episode. They, they use an instrument that it's a, a they describe it as a theremin-like instrument. I was talking with a buddy of mine that loves to nerd out on this stuff and ask him all kinds of questions and fairly confident that it's an instrument called an Andes Martinot, which was discontinued in the 80s. But it's the first time a a rock song of any kind had had used an instrument like this. And again, probably not a theremin, because I guess a theremin, in in talking to my friend, is something that takes years to practice, and it's something that most people can't do. And Brian was just thinking faster than he could act with bringing in, you know, dogs and Coke bottles and all these things. And if he thought, oh, I want to put a theremin in this song, it's not likely that he himself or anybody that he could get quickly could probably play the theremin. Mm-hmm. The theremin involves, like, you don't even touch it. You, you move your hands around it, and it picks up these frequencies with your movements that and it's really hard to stay in tune. So this Andes Martinot instrument was something that had keys that would replicate that sound. They would use it in, like, scary movies and stuff. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking, like, uh, to represent uh, UFO or alien-like creatures or something kind of trippy and creepy. Right, right. Likely this was also the instrument that was used in Good Vibrations that was released later as a single, but another theremin-like sound on that song. But yeah, had not been done leading up to that and a really cool part of this song. I was just looking over all the instruments 
in this song theremin is probably what stands out the, the most as being unique and i mean this this is probably true for so many songs on this album so it's not so unique to this song but as an example of how many instruments are showing up in these songs and in this track we have an upright bass bongos drums percussion timpani guitar harpsichord tenor sax baritone sax the theremin as trevor described harmonica bass guitar and piano that's a that's a pretty big lineup there's a lot of people a lot of different people playing all of those instruments along with the the vocalists it's a pretty impressive group i'd love to be in the studio with all 20 parts including the voices and putting all that music together yeah that's a lot going on if if you combine all of that the theremin and these words this might be the quintessential pet sounds song i mean it's talking about how brian was feeling musically it's got all the elements that he was trying to do with that wall of sound and that phil specter sound it's like if you were gonna have somebody listen to one song from pet sounds it was like what's pet sounds all about this might be the one you'd pick and just be like well read these words listen to this and this is basically pet sounds in a nutshell yeah and for for somebody who only knows the beach boys as that fun-loving surfer band, what a great entry point to show them something that totally contrasts all those vibes. Well, let's keep moving through the album. We're on track 12 now. This song is the title song. It's an instrumental called Pet Sounds. Pet sounds right on cue. <laughs> nice job, Mooney. All right, another instrumental track. This one is another amazing collaboration of sounds. Uh, we got piano, trumpet, electric guitar, drums, a huge variety of percussion, a Fender bass, saxophone, up, upright bass, and a variety of other guitars. It's really unique. It's a, it's a fun sound. It uh, kind of draws you in it's almost like you're you're fighting to hear all the different sounds competing with each other uh, to produce this overall sound did you happen to read that this song was written by brian originally in hopes that it would become a theme for a james bond film oh no i didn't see that but i can vaguely hear how it could be especially that beginning part the original title of this song was called run james run he was influenced by the soundtrack to the James Bond film that had come out the prior year, I believe, called Thunderball. Wow, I didn't realize James Bond was that old. I mean, the movie series. Yeah. I didn't know it went back that far. Crazy. Yeah, and I don't know who would have been James Bond at that point. I'd have to go look. But the movie was called Thunderball, and he really was influenced by the music and thought he'd try his hand at writing a song, and they didn't pick it up for the James Bond movie, so he changed it to Pet Sounds and put it on this album. Yeah, that's really cool history. Another footnote or side story, historical context to this album. That's really cool. 
Do you remember when we were doing our interview episode with Doug and Gary that Doug was describing the sound of that solo project that Brian did called Peer Pressure? Yeah. And he was describing the sound. He said it's like an island, tropical feel. He was giving it all these adjectives. And then Gary chimed in and he said, he said it's Martin Denny Exotica, man. Do you remember that? Yeah, I, I, I do. Martin Denny was a musician that played music that was described as a style of a combination of the South Pacific and the Orient, what a lot of people imagine the islands to be like. But he also added that it's a fantasy, though. While the South Seas forms the core region, Exotica reflects the musical impressions of every place from standard travel destinations to the mythical Shangri-La dreamt by armchair safariers. So... Martin Denny Exotica was bringing in these Latin rhythms and combining South Pacific and the Orient, but it was done in a way that appealed to the image in the heads of people that had never actually done that. But nonetheless, it became a music style. Martin Denny Exotica is what they they called it. Okay, cool. But interestingly enough, Brian Wilson claimed that he had never listened to, to Denny. And he cited John Barry, who was the composer of the soundtrack of that film, Thunderball, that James Bond film, as the inspiration for this song. Oh, okay. Well, it's definitely a fun one. This is another song where Brian's using the found sound, and there's some percussion on Coke bottles that are kind of fun to listen to. Yeah, yeah, I caught that too. That was cool. So that's our second instrumental, and we're down now to our last track of the album. The last one, track 13, is titled Caroline No. This was the final of those three songs I mentioned that Asher contributed to musically on Pet Sounds. And then the lyrics were personal to both Asher and Wilson. Wilson and his wife Marilyn at the time were still really young, but they'd been married for a while, and Brian felt that their innocence had gone away with time, and he wanted to explore that concept. And, And he's also at later times said it wasn't really about anybody specific. And then... On another occasion, he claimed that it was about an unrequited love that he had for a high school girl named Carol Mountain that he never had a relationship with, but that he just had these, continued to have these feelings for. And then on Asher's side, he had just broken up with his high school sweetheart, who was also named Carol. And he had recently visited her in New York, and she had moved there to become a Broadway dancer. And when he saw her, she had changed, and not necessarily for the worse, but she'd become more worldly, and and yes, she had cut her hair. And Marilyn had also cut her hair after Brian and her had gotten married. And so there's actually two Carols, one one on Asher's side being his high school sweetheart, and then another Carol on Brian's side that 
he never really had a relationship with, but he still pined over from high school. And so Asher wrote the lyrics as Carol I Know, which Brian misinterpreted as Caroline No. Once they got that sorted out, they both felt that it was more compelling title and related to the sentiment better to keep it Caroline No. They thought it was more poignant and had more earnestness to it. And so that's how the title became Caroline No, despite both of them having a history of a woman named Carol. Wow. I was about to say that's really clever of them as you were telling the story for them to write a song that fits both their stories, but it was actually by chance that it happened to be that way, and now it does have meaning to both of them. That's really cool. This is the first and only single to be released under Brian's own name on Capitol Records. He, of course, would go on and release singles after this, but this one was also, in addition to being on Pet Sounds under Beach Boys, released as a single not sure how much later as a, just a Brian Wilson song. Yeah, it's a really pretty song. We hear more of that falsetto from Brian in this one also. We do. And another interesting thing about that, after this track was recorded, he sped it up. And I think it was actually his dad's recommendation, Murray Wilson, that recommended speeding it up just to give it a little bit of that higher tone that made him sound younger because he wanted that youthful sound and that earnestness in the sound of the song. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a powerful song, too, lyrically reflecting on a lost love, but also on your current situation and maybe longing for parts of the past, but also moving forward. I thought maybe this song would hit a little close to home for you, right? Out of oh, the gate, oh, yeah, with the first line, huh? Line is, <laughs> where did your long hair go? Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a sad song, I thought maybe you... Uh, I just had this picture yeah. of you... In the bathroom. That's all I could think as I was listening to it, actually. Yeah, where did where did my long hair go? (laughs) It's a good thing that you hadn't heard the song prior to cutting your hair. And back to playing the studio and and that creative element that Brian was bringing to this album as a whole. He ends this song with his dogs Banana and Louie making some pet sounds with them barking, and then a sound of a train whistle to end this song. Yeah. A nice touch at the end. Well, nice way to end the album, and what a fun experience it was to be a lover of music for this long and be going down this road of album analysis and to start what really is the epicenter of the album as an art form, with the exception of perhaps Rubber Soul in Pet Sounds. I'm really glad that we picked this one. It's been a really fun experience listening and analyzing it as we get into this awesome album. Yeah, man, I've had a blast dissecting this over the past few weeks, especially this last week. I really got into it and watched Love and Mercy and a really good hour-long documentary on YouTube that gave a good synopsis of the Beach Boys' history and talked about a lot of side stories, a lot of things that we didn't even cover because they didn't specifically relate to this album. And I'm, I'm sure there's a lot related to this album that we didn't even stumble upon ourselves or have, have time to go over as we finish up this podcast approaching the the four-hour mark of, of re- recording time to know that we've probably only scratched the surface. 
of what we actually could talk about regarding this album and the Beach Boys journey is a, a real testament to who they were as a band and what they mean to the, the history of music. Yeah, well said. Well, I picked this album because it's one that I hadn't explored that I knew I needed to. And I viewed Pet Sounds as almost a rite of passage. If, if we're going to continue doing this podcast, I knew we would be doing Pet Sounds at some point. And I thought, there's no better time than now to do it. But as I talked about it initially, I, I was afraid, to be honest, in some ways, both with the bulk of content that's out there and how many people have spent more time listening and analyzing, dissecting this album than I ever could. And I was also afraid that maybe after having done all that, it wouldn't resonate with me. I didn't think of the Beach Boys as anything except a pop band prior to doing this, even though I knew in my mind that they were. And I knew this was capital A art. I can echo all of those same thoughts. I'm really glad you picked this album because prior to going through this journey of dissecting the lyrics of Pet Sounds and also researching the history of the band and Brian Wilson's story in particular, I my only framework for knowing and appreciating the Beach Boys was that that stemmed from my childhood, which at the time was really centered around the fun-loving surfer music. But I had no idea of this dimension, and I haven't gone back in my adulthood and listened to any of the Beach Boys except for a lot of those popular songs. Unfortunately, that's still how the average person thinks of this band. I mean, I know that's how I felt, and it sounds like you had a similar perception of them. In fact, I I had never seen photos of them from back in the day. I pictured they were all long, blonde hair, muscular surfer dudes, real clean cut, and a couple of them fit that part, but... It's basically Dennis, yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, But... They, they didn't come across as the band that I envisioned when I, when I started to see them and then looking into the lyrics and especially this album, they weren't the, the band that I remembered, which was awesome for me. That was such a, a cool experience and it completely changed my perception of the Beach Boys. It really opened my eyes to the complexity of their musical catalog from all the sounds, the, the orchestration of all the instruments the way they could mesh all the vocal parts and the way the band members themselves could sing different parts from Brian singing bass to flipping into falsetto and essentially singing high soprano in some of the songs. And a lot of the other guys being able to do the same thing vocally. It's, it's incredible. And the way they mesh, the way the, the sounds all come together, that's something that still to today with the technology that we have is still very difficult to do and for them to do that back then and to take it one step further for brian to be the brains behind it and for him to create this project for the most part without the help or influence of other people except for some fine tuning and tweaking here and there with the lyrics and with the guys adjusting some of the songs and the messages it really shows the musical genius that was brian wilson and i think when i reflect on the beach boys now or anytime i hear a beach boy song I'll I'll think about Pet Sounds and I'll think about Brian Wilson and how there's so much more to the Beach Boys than what the mainstream really knows. And uh, hopefully be able to pass on some of this information to other people and get them curious enough to go research and go down that, that same journey that we've done uh, so that the Beach Boys can be remembered for, for more than what we knew them as prior to this experience. Not that there's anything wrong with that. More people need to know how deep and complex the 
the musical catalog is for these guys. You mentioned how you want more people to understand that this band is more than just a pop band, singing that California sound, and that's certainly true, and I hope more and more people listen to Pet Sounds and understand that about the Beach Boys. But one of the things that I enjoyed about listening to this album as an adult is it forced me to go back and listen to some of those pop songs again, where I'm not quite as rigid in my image of what I think I need to listen to to consider myself connoisseur of great music. They're great pop songs, and I really enjoyed them just for what they were. And I almost think that diving into Pet Sounds is going to make me appreciate some of those California sound songs that, and albums that led up to this even more as well. I'm not afraid to say I just like the Beach Boys, whereas before I think it was understandable to say I'm a connoisseur of great music and I like Pet Sounds. But I think now I can just say I'm a connoisseur of great music and I love the Beach Boys. And I think this may be the pinnacle of that, but I would pull in everything else too and just say I, I think this is an awesome band. Yeah, I definitely agree with those sentiments. And as a music lover or or a critic and somebody who appreciates complexity in sound and lyrics and production of an album, there is a little bit of a hesitancy or reservation to say that you're a big fan of a band or artist who's labeled as poppy mainstream or doesn't really have a lot of depth to their work. And I could see where if people only knew the pop songs that the Beach Boys have put out over the years, and you were to say, oh, I'm a huge fan of the Beach Boys, they would say maybe like, oh, the Beach Boys, huh? You know, like they're kind of one-dimensional. It's a cool sound, but I wouldn't sit down and listen to a whole album. You know, it's not something that I would really consider good music. And then you could come back now with the knowledge uh, that we have and say, well, have you ever listened to Pet Sounds? You know, <laughs> like that would defy all of your misconceptions or stereotypes that you had about this band. And I think being exposed to a band's entire body of work allows you to form that full opinion that w without that, you really can't judge them. And I know I've been guilty of that in the past. I'll hear a couple radio hits and not really like them. And a friend will say, you got to check out this band. And I'll write them off and say, I've heard a few of their songs. I don't really like them. It's not my style. But then I go back and listen to the album and I realize I really like these guys. I just didn't like the couple hits that became mainstream that the general public appealed to the most, but that they really have some good work. And the same has happened when I've gone and seen somebody live in concert. I listened to music in the past, didn't really think I would enjoy it. And I show up and I see them live and it just adds a whole nother layer. So I guess moral of the story, you have to really explore a band's entire body of work before you really have the right to judge them and put a stamp on your opinion. Yeah, very well said. Well, I wanted to end this with a quote. It's not a quote from Brian or any of the Beach Boys, but I was really inspired in reading about this album by Brian's work ethic. I think he doesn't give himself enough credit. Earlier in the history, I was talking about how he said he's not a genius, he's just a hardworking guy. I think there's a little genius in there, too. Oh, man, a lot of genius. A lot of genius in there, too. But not to discount the work ethic part, and I think that's what I found so inspiring, and it reminded me of this quote by an American author and activist named Maureen Williamson. It's one of my favorites, and I think it applies to Brian with his feelings of insecurity in the midst of how amazing he actually was. And the quote goes like this. It says, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. 
It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We are born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. We are liberated from our own fear. Our presence automatically liberates others. And in watching Brian go through this process of figuring out this album and becoming what he really wanted to be and and putting his soul into this work, I felt liberated by that too and inspired by the fact that all of us in whatever form have some amount of that in us. I thought I'd end with that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's a very powerful quote, and it speaks to the the difficulty of of getting big or gaining success and an achievement in any area of your life. There, there's always this message to stay humble and not let your head get too big. But it's equally, if not more, difficult as that quote alluded to for you to accept the fact that you are big, that you are doing something good, and be okay with that because sometimes that idea can be overwhelming and hard for you uh, to swallow. And I think maybe that was uh, part of the curse on on Brian Wilson that I think deep down he knew and and knows that he's an extremely talented musician and has contributed some incredible work. But since he's so hard on himself, he's not able to fully accept that in the times that he has, maybe that he has stepped out. It's been too much. It's been too big. So it's, it's uh, maybe a defense mechanism for him to knock himself down. So he doesn't, he doesn't get too high on this pedestal. So the stage doesn't get too big because it'd be hard for him to step back and look at himself up there and say, wow, that's me. Like, I don't know if I can live up to this hype. I don't know if I can continue this because there's too much pressure. Yeah. Well said. That's a hard thing for any of us to do. I think well, I think we ought to wrap up. Man, this has been really fun, Shane. Yeah, it's been a blast. I'm sure we could talk for hours on this album and, and the Beach Boys, but we've at least given a fairly good overview and hopefully entertain the listeners in the process and encourage some people to go dive a little deeper into the Beach Boys music. Yeah, I hope we did too. Well, one more iconic album down. Like you said, almost a rite of passage for us to get this one under our belts moving forward with this album divers project yeah it really was well on to the next one we're gonna have a new one next a 2020 album i'm looking forward to it and until then go listen to some great music yeah for sure if you're enjoying listening to album divers you can support our podcast by subscribing reviewing and sharing it with someone else that appreciates great music Follow and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Album Divers. We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about our take on an album that you already loved or had never heard before. Do you have an album you want us to dive into? Email us at albumdiverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll consider adding it to our queue for a future episode. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you never stop discovering music that moves you to dive deeper. Until next time.